Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show Edwin Vera, the author of Pieces of Eight, probably one of the most important monetary books written in history. You can get that at the Gold Money Foundation. Also, he has written How to Dethrone the Imperial Judiciary, Crashmaker, and Constitutional Homeland Security, a call for Americans to revitalize the militia of the several states. He is considered one of the most savvy constitutional attorneys in the country. We had him on in January of 2010 to really lay out America, its founding documents, and status. And I was very concerned what just happened in June 2012 when the Affordable Care Act passed through Congress, the implications for this, the fact that we don't really understand what it means, that we've been told it's just a tax, we've been told things about the Commerce Clause, it seems very murky water in terms of what just happened. Many people think that the Affordable Care Act means that you're getting free medical insurance. Most people have never read it. Most people don't understand it and have no clue what's going to happen as a result of this. So I have invited the person that I consider to be a genius in the area of the Constitution. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Edwin Vera to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Thank you for having me. First of all, what is the Commerce Clause? Most of us do not understand it and do not understand why it was used in explaining why this bill passed or what the decisions were about. Well, there are actually two levels in, in discussing this. There's the real Constitution, and then, then there's the fictitious Constitution. The Commerce Clause is one provision of Article One, which deals with Congress, the powers of Congress. And Section 8 of Article One lists certain powers of, of Congress, and among them is the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations among the several states and with the Indian tribes. That's the language of the Constitution. And this was put in uh, for two reasons. You had foreign nations and the Indian tribes, which at that time were treated as foreign nations or quasi-foreign nations. And obviously that had to be dealt with at the national level, the congressional level. You couldn't have uh, individual states dealing separately with foreign countries in terms of regulating foreign trade. And then the provision that deals with commerce among the several states was put in to prevent the states from imposing tariff and other trade barriers against each other. The thought was that that would be very destabilizing, obviously, it balkanized the country. Uh, and you wanted to have a centralized control over that primarily to prevent the states from doing it, right? so that we'd have a single market throughout the United States and not a market made up of 13 states or 14 states or whatever separately attempting to regulate commerce. So that was the basic thrust of the provision. And if you look at it from that perspective, it made perfectly good sense. What then was discovered over the years by individuals who wanted to expand the power of Congress, centralize economic uh, controls in Washington, D.C., and this happened actually not simply in the Roosevelt administration, which was going on several decades earlier. They saw the possibility of using the Commerce Clause as a platform on which to build a regulatory 
economic structure. The problem with that was that the Supreme Court early on recognized this terminology among the several states. The commerce that went on within a particular state was not among the several states, and therefore was not subject to congressional regulation. So the, uh, the, the lawyers and the wordsmiths got together and they said, well, we're going to invent some terminology here that will avoid that problem. And eventually a doctrine came out that said, well, Congress can regulate commerce among the several states and anything that affects such commerce. And of course, those words affect commerce are not in the Constitution. They were made up. Uh, by lawyers, and eventually during the Roosevelt administration, that doctrine was accepted because uh, the thrust at that point in time was to expand the powers of the central government over the economy in order to deal with the Depression, right? That was the theory that they put forward. So by 1937, you have uh, the Supreme Court finally uh, being packed, of course, by Roosevelt's appointees, coming around to this doctrine that the Commerce Clause is almost for all intents and purposes unlimited. Anything that is uh, commerce among the several states or affects commerce in some way, uh, which almost every kind of economic transaction does in some manner, is subject to congressional regulation, and this creates a, almost a totalitarian uh, power structure in Washington. Uh, so that's where we were sitting uh, before this Obama health care uh, bill came forward. And the theory that they were putting out in terms of what's called the individual mandate, the requirement that individuals, families, businesses, whatever, uh, have some kind of uh, private health insurance arrangement made. The theory was, well, health insurance is a commercial transaction, obviously, you're buying that in the open market. And even though it's a transaction that occurs in a particular state, with a particular individual dealing with a particular insurance company. And healthcare obviously is even more localized than that, right? You're going to your local hospital for it, to your local doctor. Uh, those activities affect commerce if we think of it in the broad picture of all the people who are engaged in these transactions. And so we in Congress, the theory went, are entitled to regulate that. All right? Now, the problem with that theory was that they were talking to a large extent about people who were not going to engage in commerce, who were not going to purchase health insurance for one reason or other. Maybe they were going to self-insure. Maybe they didn't have enough money to purchase health insurance, whatever it was. But they weren't going to become actors in commerce. And so now we had a departure from even the wildest theory that had been generated by the Supreme Court to the new theory that you were involved in commerce even though you weren't involved in commerce. That is, your choice not to engage in commerce was, in fact, engaging in commerce. So that was the theory that they put forward, and they also, of course, had a provision, in the, in the, have a provision in the bill. Uh, and it depends how you want to characterize it, a tax, a penalty, whatever, which essentially says, if you haven't purchased private insurance after a certain point in time, you're going to be required to do this, or you will have to pay a penalty for that, a tax for that. And I think that the figure is now like $690 per person, uh, per family or whatever, or 2% of the f family income. So they, they have a fixed rate. Wait a minute, per person, per family? I think it's $695 per person. Yeah. And then it's 2% or 2% of family income. I don't have the exact formula in front of me, but there's, right. there's a fixed formula for this that they have, all right? So it's not going to be cheap. You have a family of four, you're talking about uh, $2,800, let's say, all right? 
or 2% of your income, or whichever is uh, greater. So here we have this structure, which was put forward on the basis of the Commerce Clause theory. And they were saying, well, this wasn't really a tax at all, because they don't want to admit that they're increasing, there's going to be huge tax increases as a result of this bill. So it goes to the Supreme Court, and the difficulty in the Supreme Court is, of course, they're fractured among those nine justices in terms of their political ideology, in terms of their constitutional theorizing, or what, what have you. So uh, something of a pastiche came out, uh, kind of a Waldorf salad of opinions. But it boils down to this. This was very peculiar. Uh, the government came in and said, listen, this is a tax that we're imposing on people. And we have a statute called the Tax Injunction Act, which prevents the courts from dealing with tax questions directly. That is, if I have a question with the IRS dealing with my income taxes, I can't go into a, a federal court and sue the IRS directly. I have to go through the administrative procedures and ultimately probably pay the tax. And then after that's done, I can come in and ask for a refund or I can challenge them essentially after the fact. But I can't proactively stop the imposition of a tax on me. And that works both at the federal level and at the state level with the Tax Injunction Act for both levels. So that was the first argument that the government put forward. They said, well, the court shouldn't even be hearing this case. And if you read the opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, he deals with that and says, no, this isn't a tax. So the Tax Injunction Act doesn't apply. Then the next thing that he says, in his opinion, and in this particular point he is supported by uh, Scalia and the other dissenters, so uh, th that's rather significant. We have a national majority on this particular question. The government argued, well, this is a regulation of commerce along the lines of what I just described. And Robert says, no, it is not a regulation of commerce because you're not dealing with someone who's engaged in a commercial transaction. You're dealing with someone who is not acting at all. You can't require or treat that non-activity as commercial activity. And if you think logically, well, obviously that's true because for every activity that a person engages in, there's an infinite number of activities you don't engage in, right? And if every one of those activities in that infinite list could be regulated by commerce because of your non-activity, then it would seem to follow that Congress is a totalitarian power. It can do anything it wants, right? Uh, so that extreme interpretation, misinterpretation of the Commerce Clause, at least for now, has been suppressed by the opinions of Roberts and uh, the Scalia dissent, because if you add up the number of votes, they will see. But it's, an, again, one of these very close votes, five to four, and it could change tomorrow depending on attitudes in the court, nor somebody, uh, you know, they bring in a new justice, one justice leaves, they bring in another one. But how, so uh, Roberts came, comes to the decision, commerce class ca cannot be used to support the individual mandate requirement. Well, then what's left? And so he comes up with a brand new theory, which is, well, this can be supported by the power to tax. Now, remember, earlier in the opinion, he just said, this, is not a, this statute does not impose a tax. And then the <laughs> second half of the opinion says, oh, but we can uphold it by calling it a tax. All right? So it's rather illogical to begin with and one wonders, you know, as the expression goes, what was he smoking when he wrote this opinion? <laughs> but the real danger to it is this. He has made clear in the earlier part of his opinion that Congress has no power to require people to buy health insurance 
under the Commerce Clause, or any other power. It has no power to require people to do this, all right? No substantive power. But then he comes along and says, but Congress can tax people if they don't do it, all right? That's the scary part. That's the scary part, because now what that says is, even though it's admitted that Congress has no power to require you to do this, Congress can tax you if you don't do it. Well, that makes the taxing power the infinite power, because now Congress can tax any non-activity. Well, there are an infinite number of non-activities, right? So if Congress can tax every non-activity you engage in, obviously for the purpose of coercing you into engaging in that, then in essence, the taxing power alone, this one clause, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1 of the Constitution, this one clause of the Constitution has suddenly been discovered to give Congress more power than Stalin had. I mean, it's insane. And of course, what's interesting about this is, if you think it through, how are taxes enforced? Now, the present Obamacare legislation doesn't seem to give the IRS a direct enforcement mechanism. They apparently can withhold a refund from you. So I suppose a number of people who, who overpay their taxes each year and, and are looking forward to a refund would find enforcement in that mechanism. They wouldn't get their full refund. But there doesn't seem to be any other direct way in that statute that the IRS can enforce this mandate. Isn't that now? Cause well, that's for now, all right? That's for now. So, But the next step would be, well, they'll simply put in the same enforcement mechanisms that they have for all other tax payments. And how do those work? Well, if you don't pay, uh, they levy your property, or next step, they bring a criminal prosecution against you, all right? So what's the upshot of this Roberts' opinion? He's saying, although Congress has no power to tell you to do X, Y, or Z, they could pass a statute taxing you for not doing X, Y, and Z to any level, right? There's no limitation on how high the tax can be. The power to tax involves the power to destroy. McCulloch versus Maryland, famous Supreme Court case. Every law student reads that case uh, in the, like the second week in constitutional law, right? Power to tax involves the power to destroy. There's no limit to the tax burden that can be imposed. So they can impose a tax, crippling, financially crippling tax on you for failing to engage in activity A, B, or C. And if you somehow refuse to pay that tax, they can send you to jail. Seriously? Well, that's the way the tax system works now. Right? They impose a tax, income tax, sales tax, whatever. If you refuse to pay... They might levy some, you know, levy on your property, try to take property from you. But assume you didn't have property. Assume you were doing this willfully. I'm just not going to pay. I'm a scoffle. I refuse to pay. What do they do? Their ultimate penalty is criminal prosecution. That's called tax evasion. Right? Willful failure to file. You can think of a number of these uh, rubrics that they use uh, on people who, in one way or another, refuse to comply with the tax laws. So the principle that he has adopted, Chief Justice Roberts adopted in this opinion is that Congress now has the power, even though they don't have the power to tell you to do A, B, or C, they don't have a specific power that will deal with that, they can use the taxing power to force you to do A, B, and C, or if you refuse to send you to jail. So this is not only the power to tax, it's the power to punish. Well, it's the, sure it's the power to punish, but it's the power to force compliance, because most people, I would imagine, if the tax is, uh, you know, quote-unquote, reasonable, they're going to comply, 
right? Rather than face the consequences of, of failure to comply. How many people now comply with the tax code? Quote unquote, voluntarily, right? Don't you think, Edwin, that many people, if they were in a better position, they would have a medical insurance policy? Maybe there are some people that just don't want it, right? But there are more people that can't afford it. Well, I think that's exactly the problem. So what are they going to do with those people? Uh, imagine now the tax authorities come in and they say, well, we're going to take this 600 or whatever number, uh, this penalty from you, this tax from you. We're going to withhold your refund. And now what do they do? do they, you know, they cut back on their food. Do they cut back on their uh, you know, transportation? Uh, they cut back on the you know, drive the heating level of their homes down so they're you know, 55 degrees through the winter. I mean, what do they do? If they can't increase their incomes, and of course we're living through a uh, apparently a depressionary phase here in our economy, if they can't increase their incomes, and now we're imposing this seven hundred dollar, let's say seven hundred dollar per person tax on them, what's going to happen? Well, I guess the general standard of living is going to have to go down, so the the health insurance companies can be better off. What about the new law that was created a few years ago that said that if the IRS suspects, doesn't even have evidence, but suspects that you owe from $50,000 on, you can be prevented somehow, I don't know if it's through TSA or Homeland Security, but whatever it is, you can be prevented from flying out of the country. Well, sure, they're trying to stop the rich expatriates from getting out. And the other side of that coin is uh, collecting information from foreign financial institutions as to who has money overseas. I hear that not even Switzerland is neutral anymore as of the no. last few years. Yeah, that's right. And there's been so much pressure brought on all of these countries that they pretty much act as uh, information clearinghouses uh, for the IRS. Very difficult situation. But, but you know, they, <laughs> put it this way, the people in Washington are getting desperate, right? <laughs> you, know, you put a mad dog in a corner, what's it going to do but bite? I can understand their position, but what I don't understand is the vast apathy in the public looking at this and seeing all of these draconian regulations and institutional structures being built, especially around the Department of Homeland Security, with its tentacles reaching all the way down into the local police departments. Everyone looking at this with a sort of placidity or stolidity is that, well, this doesn't really mean anything to me. Well, of course it means something. On whom do, they, do you think they're going to use these institutional structures? I mean, this, this uh, Obamacare reaches everybody. Another thing that's disturbed me about the Affordable Care Act and conversations on every side is that it feels and looks like the public is lost in the for or against, but nobody really knows what the gorilla is. Like, nobody knows what the it is that they're all fighting about and arguing about. The conversation is not the real conversation that needs to be happening the conversation that needs to be happening and the focus and the discernment that needs to be there is what we're talking about right now. I would say a great deal of Americans have missed what just happened in America. Do you agree? Among other things that they've missed, what has been happening. I mean, this one had a tremendous amount of, of press. But in the long run, there are probably institutional changes that are much more dangerous because it looks as if this uh, Obama health care is going to have to be scuttled at some point in time simply because of the huge cost. And You know, with our real problem with health care, I don't want to get too much into health care, but the real problem with health care is compare the health care system to automotive insurance. Automotive insurance deals with essentially catastrophic situations. At least that's what most people worry about 
run over the little blind girl in the wheelchair, right? You don't have automobile insurance to change your spark plugs, to change your oil, to tune your engine, to wash the car, right? Right. You don't have that. But that's the way the healthcare system works. The analogy, right? The lowest level healthcare issues are tied into this insurance system with all the bureaucratic additions of cost that are involved there. Instead of a system that was essentially based on the catastrophic event. And I think a lot of self-insurers, this is the way I always operated was a self-insurer, I would go out and find insurance to deal with a catastrophic event. Absolutely. $50,000, $75,000 and up. If I had that kind of a medical bill, I'd buy that kind of insurance. Now, that kind of insurance is relatively inexpensive. But now I would have to finance everything below that level. I would be a self-insurer for all of the normal health transactions that would go on below that catastrophic level. And that worked out perfectly well. And I don't see why, other than governmental intervention in the healthcare industry, which we've had for a long time, this is not the first major intervention, we couldn't get along perfectly well with that kind of a system, leaving some kind of a safety net in there for those people who are simply too impoverished uh, to be able to deal uh, with even normal uh, health uh, care problems. And that's typically been the approach in other areas as well. But now what we have created is this huge insurance bureaucratic complex, the interest in, of which is not really in providing health care for people, but otherwise they wouldn't be setting up death panels, for heaven's sake. Since you mentioned that, you know, there has been a lot of press that the concept of a death panel has been blown up and improperly contextualized, and it's not the real thing. So... You're very much the devil in the details, man. Why do you say death panels? Well, I think it's going to happen because of the cost problem, obviously. Health care costs uh, go up exponentially as you get to the higher age brackets in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So you're looking at a system which is driven by cost and bureaucratic efficiency, if you will. And they're going to look at that and say, well, these are, what's the expression? These are lives not worth living. People who aren't <laughs> contributing a great deal to the economy. They probably all, well, most of them are retired. Many of them are, are too sick to do anything. Uh, and we have fantastic costs for very high level of, of service that has to be provided to these individuals. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is not to allow them to get these treatments. All right. You simply won't be given dialysis. You simply won't be given uh, the you know the heart uh, uh, valve treatment or whatever because it's too expensive for you. What's your alternative? Well, it's suffer or die, and we have a solution for that, which is you know assisted suicide. Essentially, we'll give you the pill. We'll give you the injection. Just sign here, and it will be good for you. It will be good for your family because they won't have to pay anymore, and it'll be good for the country as a whole because it'll help the economy. And I think that's the attitude. We have a lot of people in the higher uh, echelons, if you will, the intelligentsia, who say, well, we have too many people in the world right now. Definitely. We have Definitely. to cut back by you know, orders of magnet billions, not just millions, but billions we have to cut back. And obviously one way to start on this, you can start at one end by saying, well, we're going to cut down the births right, through abortion and so forth. But on the other end, we kill off the old people. They're not providing any real service to us anymore. Get rid of them. 
That's kind of a callous way to put it, but I think that's the way these people think. And, And this medical structure that they've set up is perfectly designed to do that. Because now you're going to have total dependence on these insurance companies, which are interlocked with the government bureaucracy, and they're simply going to tell you as an arbitrary fact, oh, you're 65 years old or older, you're not entitled to dialysis. We're not going to pay for that. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Did you know that approximately 65,000 of the 70,000 chemicals that have been dumped into the environment are considered to be highly toxic? that we are ingesting those toxins through the air, the water, and the food supply, and that no matter how much you eat organic food and drink the best, purest water, we all have to detoxify from these chemicals that we're being bombarded with. We're also being bombarded with something invisible, the radiation fallout from Fukushima, one of the worst man-made environmental disasters humanity has seen since Chernobyl. In combination with the BP oil spill, the fact is that we have to detoxify our bodies of toxins and of the radiation. But how do you do that? You do that with rock-powdered zeolite. Zeolite is the most effective mineral you can take to detoxify your body. Zeolite has been used to treat Chernobyl victims, the land and agriculture. It's been very effective. It's also given to animals to detoxify as well. If you are interested in establishing a prevention program and detoxifying your body, go to etszeolite.com or call Hank Heister at 818-707-0468. And if you tell him it's rainmaking time, you will get free shipping for the product that you order. Call Hank Heister at 818-707-0468 and order your Zeolite today. And back to the show. Have you read the bill? A little of it, yeah. There's too much to read the whole thing. See, that's the other thing that's very disconcerting. How can anybody vote on things... And how can these people be representing us in the Congress, and they've never read it? Well, you know, this is not something that's new. I know that, but right? still, it's so frightening. They respond to the, the lobbying pressure, and you know, they get the right phone calls, and they know what to do. But I'll give you an example, Roosevelt era, 1933. Roosevelt comes in, because you have the Depression going on. And these long bills, long at that time, small today, but long at that time, were coming out of the White House, coming over to Congress. And you read the legislative history, the debates in Congress, uh, especially the Republicans are complaining, wait a minute, we, have, we haven't even read this bill. It hasn't even been printed. We haven't read it. How can we be voting on this? And these, the remark would come back to the other side, well, this is what the president thinks we need to do. Right? We can't sit around and debate this. We're in a crisis. We have to do what the president wants us to do. And so they would pass these bills, one after the other, one disaster after another. So this is almost at the same level. Was it, was it Nancy Pelosi? Yeah, she said, said, just sign it. We'll deal with the details afterwards. Yeah, we'll find out what it means later. We'll read it later. Let's just pass it now. Well, that was the exact same attitude that was involved in the Roosevelt administration, early years of the Roosevelt administration. But of course, they had a real crisis going on. They were in the midst of the Depression, the big bank collapse of 1932. All right. Uh, we're not really in, at that level of crisis. But in the long run, this thing will have a critical effect because now you're overturning or injecting into the entire uh, healthcare system of this huge country 
false principles? What's going to be the consequence? Well, you know what I think their ultimate goal here is? I mean, they're not worried so much about providing health care. They're worried about political control. This is one of the dependency mechanisms. They already have a good dependency mechanism in the Social Security system. Old people have to rely upon that. Uh, now they're going to create another dependency mechanism in health care. Dependency on whom? Dependency on the political class, right? We absolutely have to keep voting these people in so that they will maintain this system on which we are dependent. Are you familiar with a man named Stephen Spoonamore? I don't think so. He was involved in establishing and helping the internal components of ATMs, the banking system. He really understands the electronic side of transactions. And he lectured for years about if the voting in America goes to an electronic voting system, it is totally hackable. Our democracy is dead. And he explains the whole thing. He takes hours to explain and answer questions and lay it out. And he spoke all over the country about this. But one of the things that he was emphatic about was he said, you do not understand how fast I can get into a voting system. You do not, as the public, understand this. So if you have 30 states in America that have electronic voting, effectively, it's done. Foreign entities can get in. It's a totally hackable system. And then he lays out how exactly it works. Well, apparently with this Affordable Care Act, part of it involves establishing electronic infrastructure so that all medical records are totally centralized and electronic. Now, before Farrah Fawcett passed away, her electronic records were hacked. And that information got out. So the thing that also disturbs me in this whole thing is that the infrastructure is being changed from a paper system, very much like voting, to electronics. Now, I know a lot of people who are in love with the Internet and totally live electronically now and virtually. While it's been a good thing for many people, it's a potentially dangerous thing, too, because when you make it a systemic, centralized thing, your information and your data is no longer protected, period. It's over. And so that has never been talked about with this Affordable Care Act, that part of the infrastructure is to make electronic your private personal medical records. It's very disturbing. And Stephen Spoonamore is the only person in the world that I have heard that can explain it the way that he explains it. I think he was on the Velvet Revolution or something, but he really lays it out. It is totally worthy of listening to him. I invited him on, but he said he was so aggravated and he's so over trying to explain to the American public this scenario. He doesn't even want to do interviews anymore. He's just given up. He said it's over. Because the people are actually operating as if their votes are going to be counted, and they have no clue. What do you think about that? Well, I think, obviously, that's a correct interpretation, but there's a simple solution. I mean, all people have to do is demand paper ballots. Imagine a system of this kind. You go in, and there's uh, one of these triplicate ballots, and it has a serial number on it and a tab on the bottom that you can rip off with the serial number. So you go into the voting booth and you mark this thing up, and you hand the uh, first two copies to the voting registrar, and you take the tab off the bottom that has the serial number on it, unique serial number, and you keep the third copy. 
And the first two copies they use for counting the votes, and one of those is going to be the permanent copy that's stored somewhere. And the next day, there's a list in your precinct by serial number of each ballot showing how that ballot was marked, which candidates were chosen, and then it's summed at the bottom. So now anyone can walk in there, look at his serial number on the tab, look at the serial number on the list, and say, yes, they have correctly allocated my vote. Oh, and I can add all these up, and the, t the total is correct. All right? Right. What's the problem with that? Really simple. Maybe you'd need two or three times as many uh, registrars or people at the at the uh, voting uh, polling places but that's to worth do the it. calculations. But given the nature of a voting system, how important it is to have an honest vote, I don't think anybody could argue that that would be a you know excessive cost, right? And there's the proof. It's on a piece of paper, and you can you would know you would know whether your vote had been correctly tabulated because you'd simply go down to that voting precinct office and look up the number. The, impossible to have fraud, right? Well, here's my question. The thing you said at the beginning to me is the basis for the whole thing. There needs to be a demand for paper ballots. But why isn't there a demand for paper ballots? In my view, it's because the public is not informed about the electronic side of this, what it does and how it works. And until that frame of reference is established, there won't be a demand for paper ballots because everybody's plugged in electronically and they think it's better and more efficient. I will tell you, Jim Rogers, who's a legendary commodities investor, and I got into a conversation off the record. He came to Los Angeles. I interviewed him a few years ago. And he was very excited and he felt very strongly that the way to get more people involved in voting was to make the whole voting process electronic. And he was so emphatic about it. And I said, Jim, you need to talk to Stephen Spoonamore. You've got to learn what happens in the back end of this, how it really works, because this will be a totally hackable system. You won't be able to ensure what you're referring to as a democracy. We won't even get into the fact that we are not supposed to be living in a democracy. We're supposed to be living in a republic. But that's a separate matter, okay? Some of the complexity is once somebody gets invested in something, his intentions were good, which is to get more people to vote. But the application of it was the problem. So the devil's always in the details, is I guess my point to you. I love what you just suggested. It's a scientific uh, problem here. How do you verify you know, the scientific theory? Uh, if the thing is not verifiable or if it's not falsifiable, it's non-scientific. If we can't come up with an experimental protocol for determining whether this theory can be falsified or can be verified, then the theory is not scientific. And all I'm pointing out here is, yeah. in voting... You have to have a way to come back after the fact and verify or falsify the final numbers, right? Right. Well, how do you do that in the electronic systems? These systems don't keep records, number one, most of them. And number two, they could be falsified either at the time. As I understand, I could be voting for Mr. X and the machine could be calculating my vote for Mr. Y, right? At that moment, they could be hacked in that fashion. Or they could be hacked later on. Right at the end of the day, there's some way they get in there and change the vote totals, right? And there's no way to work backwards in this system and show that that happened. Right. So it's not verifiable, 
or falsifiable, whichever one. It's non-scientific. Well, you look at that and you say, well, what's the point of this then? Right? Why don't we just draw names out of a hat? It's all <laughs> random. Except it isn't random because someone's manipulating it. And it just strikes me that it's hard to believe that the average person has not heard over the years about this problem of the electronic voting machines. I mean, recently you had the problem with the, you know, the Ron Paul campaign and the falsification of votes here and there in the, in the primaries or the caucuses or what have you. And that was getting terrific publicity. So I'm just surprised that uh, one would assume that it's a really total ignorance on the part of the public. It, it seems to me as if it's more along the lines of, well, we just don't give a damn. We really don't care. Yeah, we know about this problem. We really don't care, which seems to be the attitude for most of the problems we have in this. Oh, yeah, we know that they're corrupt. Oh, yeah, we know that they're stealing us blind. Oh, yes, we know that our representatives are actually responding to demands from lobbying groups. They don't give a damn about us. But we really don't care. But you know what, Edwin? I think people do care. I think people feel helpless. I think people feel overwhelmed. I think people don't know what is effective action when this is going on? Seriously, even I was grappling with this. I spent time with Jim Rogers on the phone when he was here in Los Angeles and he was presenting this whole thing. I've called Stephen Spoonamore many, many times. I said, look, if this doesn't become a central frame of reference in the United States, there's no point in voting anymore because most of the public doesn't even know about it, let alone get it, that it has to become a central issue. And I don't blame people like Stephen Spoonmore just being so exhausted for so many years, explaining it, rallying, getting people to hear this. Again, it's just so frustrating. So I think there's so much corruption and there's so much wrongdoing that people are overwhelmed. I believe most people are good and that they do care, but there isn't the understanding. They don't have the frame of reference that you do. They just don't. And plus, you're sitting with massive detail, the devil in the details on so many levels of this. I have a quick question for you that I've wanted to ask you for a couple of years. And that is, this reminds me of the fact that Cass Sunstein and others like him, including Obama, including Al Gore and others, really feel that the Constitution is a living, breathing document that should be malleable and changeable and adapted to the present day. I really would like to invite you to speak to that because conceptually it sounds true. It sounds good. But when you get into the details of what that means, totally different. What's Number your one, thoughts? I don't think they believe that at all. I think what they believe is that they want to exercise whatever powers they want to exercise. And they simply use the constitution and laws of this country as a fig leaf coloration, if you will, right? rationalization for what they're doing. I think if you go back a while in history, you'll find that there probably were some people that uh, advanced that theory because they felt that the Constitution was too uh, rigid and it was too difficult uh, to make uh, fundamental changes. You had to go through the amendment process or perhaps they you know, thinking along the lines of the Supreme Court reinterpreting the Constitution. But what's interesting about that theory to me is it doesn't apply. You'll never find anyone that will say that that theory should apply to statutes. <laughs> and we, have some, we have a lot of statutes that have been around for decades, right? Right. Statutes coming out of the 1930s, statutes coming out of the 1920s, right? Still with us, right? Because they apply to situations that are perennial. 
And no one comes along and says, well, we need to apply the living statute theory and have the judges go along and reinterpret these statutes the way they feel is necessary for you know, modern situations. Now, why isn't that true? Why is one part of the law subject to this living document theory and another part of the law isn't? Well, it's a power grab, fundamentally. Constitutional structure was designed to be rigid in order to bring issues of change to general public attention. If we're going to change one of these provisions, we want to have a national debate and a national consensus. That's why you need three-quarters of the states to pass a constitutional amendment. We don't want these things done in the fashion of the English Constitution. I mean, at the time of the Founding Fathers, there was a constitution that they were living under. It was the British Constitution. And the British Constitution was essentially what we call a living constitution. Parliament could change it, or the king could change it, depending on the balance of power. And it had been changed many, many times in the course of English history, uh, the latest one being 1688. All right. So that was what they were living under. And the problem that they saw was, well, this did not provide sufficient guarantees for what? The natural rights of man, right? The Declaration of Independence calls the un unalienable rights, right? For which all governments are, are founded to protect those rights. It did not provide sufficient protection because it was too plastic in a political sense. It could be manipulated and changed by whichever group of ministers happened to gain the king's uh, fancy or whatever majority in parliament. So they come up with this essentially new idea, at least in the English system it was a new idea, of a fixed set of principles that will apply in terms of powers and limitations on powers, what lawyers call disabilities. Right? That's the constitutional structure. We have powers and we have disabilities. These are the things the government can do, and these are the things it can't do. And then there's a provision to amend it. If what? If there's a sufficient consensus, three-quarters of the states, that this needs to be done for the, as it were, for the common good, right? Common defense, general welfare, right? right? Those basic principles. But it's to focus the attention of the country on that particular issue. So what happens here is we, we've got kind of government by stealth. They come up with these ideas, and actually the living constitution, they don't even debate these ideas anymore. They just do it, right? It, it's when you catch them doing it, they say, oh, well, we're doing this because we have a living constitution. Right? They're not even honest enough to come out in Congress or the courts, and tell us, well, we are actually making a change here because now we think that it's appropriate under the circumstances. That's what's fascinating about it. I mean, the whole, the whole doc, the, the doctrine is false from a constitutional perspective. This is not the way this Constitution was ever designed to be written. And imagine this for a moment. You're sitting down, there's a Constitution, a contract in front of you. Let's not even make it a Constitution. There's a contract in front of you that the other party wants you to sign. And you say, well, now, what does this mean? And the other party says, well, it will mean what I think it should mean, you know, a year from now or so forth, depending on circumstances. <laughs> Would you sign that contract? Heck no. Of course not. No one in his right mind in the simplest commercial transaction would agree to that kind of an arrangement. Do you think that the founding fathers of this country wrote the U.S. Constitution on that basis? Absolutely not. Of course, it's, it's nonsense, right? But even being nonsensical in theory, if they came out honestly and said, well, this is what we're doing, I'd say, well, at least, all right, you're laying it on the table, and now we can look at this in terms of the merits, the substance. But they don't even do that. All right, the whole thing is a fraud. And this is the grave difficulty because this government is based upon the concept of self-government, 
right? The people, we the people, three most important words in the Constitution. That's how the Constitution begins. We the people to ordain and establish this Constitution. Not the judges, not the politicians, not Congress, not the president, not the lobbyists. We the people do it. Self-government is the essence of the problem because we don't have it. We've allowed ourselves to be governed to such an extent that we no longer govern ourselves. And that's why I come back to this point of indifference. Right? People just don't care. Self-government is not a spectator sport. And you see people essentially sitting on the sidelines, doing nothing. I don't care what their excuse is. In the final analysis, there is no excuse. You are responsible. You know, I think of this in the terms of the good cop, bad cop scenario. We hear all this all the time. Right. Uh, there's some police brutality goes on, some terrible case. And they say, well, that's just the bad cops. You know, there are all these good cops. And I ask the question, if there are all these good cops, why are the bad cops still in that department? Exactly. Why aren't they being punished? Why aren't they being you know, excluded in some way? And the answer is they're all rotten. All right? You don't find a single one that stands up and says, this is inappropriate behavior. Let me use that kind of trivial statement. And I give the example of the, the fellow who was beaten to death out there in California not too long ago. Right. A homeless person. Uh, I think he was slightly uh, uh, mentally retarded. And you see the pictures that came up on YouTube, and here's this whole group of cops standing around, some of them beating him, and the others just standing there watching. It's frightening. <laughs> what did they do? Right, nothing. Exactly the problem of, of, in, uh, of indifference. We're, we're looking at this series of uh, you know, grotesque violations, all the consequences that those violations will have economically, socially, culturally, politically, whatever. We're looking at all of this and we're saying, it really doesn't matter to me enough to get off my rear end and do something. Okay, so let's talk about the doing something part in the context of the analogy that you just gave. What would that manifest as? Well, now we have two problems coming down the tracks at us. The first is the economic collapse. I mean, there's no way we're going to get out of that. Uh, very hard economic times are coming. And the consequence of that, of course, is going to be social dislocation. Uh, you know, economic collapse, social dislocation, civil unrest, probably a lot of civil disobedience, right? So you have social chaos as well as economic chaos. How are we going to deal with those two? Well, the other side has a plan. They may not be able to deal with the economic collapse, although they'll give us some new currency or whatever, give something to try and stabilize their position. But in terms of the social breakdown, they have a plan. It's called the Department of Homeland Security. Right? Uh, and they're going to impose what essentially amounts to police state tactics in this country to, to quell any kind of civil unrest that would lead to significant political change. But looking at it from the other perspective, from the perspective of self-government, what do we have to do? Well, there are two things that can be done that can be done at the state level. I've been trying to promote this for a long time. Number one is the adoption of an alternative currency system. Very easy to do. These systems are already on the shelf. We can pull one off and uh, adopt it in a particular state. Uh, and this would enable us to continue to function economically, even if the Federal Reserve System entirely collapses. Second element would be the reinstatement of the constitutional militia in each state. And there's one in every state, 50 of them. The Constitution calls it the militia of the several states. And this would transfer what's called homeland security responsibilities from that centralized office in Washington, D.C., Department of Homeland Security, down to the state and really the local level. 
because all militia units would ultimately be organized on the local level, probably the county level in each state. And if we had that kind of structure, which would not be very difficult to set up, and the monetary side of it could be up 60 days after the statute was passed, uh, the militia side of it would take a little bit longer because they have to phase that in because people are not used to dealing in that in that manner. Uh, but that would mitigate, wouldn't solve, but it would mitigate these problems that are coming down the tracks at us. And number two, it would radically undercut this centralization of government in Washington. And let me just go back to the, the voting problem. Imagine that you had a militia structure, 10%. 10% of the number of people that would have been in the colonial structure in terms of, of percentages, because they had essentially everybody, every adult male was a member of the structure. So you had 10% of that in our society today. You could have complete control of the voting process by local individuals on a rotational basis so they couldn't be bribed or suborned in any way, done along the lines of what I just suggested with the paper ballots. You set up this kind of system, the very next election, all election fraud would be removed. All right? The very next election, it would be removed. Stop for one minute and explain to the public what is the militia, because I want to tell you that this is a word that was used a very long time ago, and I think there's more irrational fear about it and indifference to it because it's not understood. So please define it and then go back to what you were saying. Well, it's not a word that was used a very long time ago. It's still used. I mean, it appears in the Constitution in uh, Article 1, Section 8, Clauses 15 and 16, and Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1, and in the Second Amendment. Uh, the militia is essentially the organization of all able-bodied citizens in the ultimate homeland security structure. And its purpose was actually twofold. Number one, to provide this massive potential for mobilization of the population in terms of the types of crises that they were familiar with in those days. And the Constitution talks about them, uh, execution of the laws, suppressing insurrections, repelling invasions, typical situations. And secondly, to provide the ultimate check and balance against usurpation and tyranny in the political system, which was embodied in the concept of the standing army. The standing army was the great danger that the founding fathers saw, because the standing army was the thing that the usurper and the tyrant would use to gain abusive political power over the general public. So, granting that a standing army might be necessary in time of war, for instance, you might need some kind of a standing army even in time of peace, you know, just to have it ready. Uh, the, check, the ultimate check and balance was that the entire population was going to be organized in a way such that the standing army would be deterred from taking the side of the usurper, or if it did attempt to do that, then su sufficient resistance would be mobilized. That's the ultimate picture. But if you look at our problems today in terms of what's called homeland security, well, they're probably much more diverse, in a sense dangerous, than the, you know, our colonial ancestors ever faced. I mean, just think of things like uh, industrial accidents, for instance, that they never would have uh, had to face. Uh, ec complete economic breakdown 
you know, central banking and the failure of the monetary system. Again, something that they never would have had to face. Uh, food security problems. Uh, they lived in a these quasi-agricultural, semi-agricultural economy. Uh, so unless they had a you know, particular drought or something, some natural uh, disaster, uh, they weren't particularly worried about starving to death. Uh, whereas you look at the modern American uh, food distribution system, uh, you know how long would the supermarket shelves uh, remain uh, filled in a urban environment in the case of a breakdown of the uh, monetary system that led to a breakdown of the transportation system? What, two days, three days? You hear these predictions, right? Uh, we're certainly not in a, in a situation where we would be self-sufficient there. I go back to the example of Katrina, the hurricane. What happened? They knew the hurricane was coming. They had a pretty good idea of how strong it was. They knew that New Orleans being below sea level might have a problem. Uh, there was some suspicion that the levees wouldn't hold, no matter what the Corps of Engineers, Army Corps of Engineers, told them. And didn't the state refuse to fix the levees based yeah, on they didn't want to pay the money? That line, right? So th- they knew all of this. Hurricane comes, disaster. They call in FEMA and these other federal agencies, and we know how well they did, right? It was chaos. If they had had a militia structure in New Orleans or Louisiana, because actually the militia structure is a state institution, if they had a militia structure in Louisiana, again, 10%, 10% of what it would be under the colonial standard of all able-bodied males, actually all able-bodied women today as well, uh, if they, 10%, not only would they have been able to solve the problems after the hurricane hit, but they probably would have dealt with those problems beforehand. They wouldn't have had that levy problem because if the Corps of Engineers hadn't done it, the militia would have done it. Because the militia would be organized today uh, in what I would call skill sets. You'd have units of the militia that would deal with heavy construction. So if you were in a New Orleans-type situation, the levies would be their responsibility. You'd have units of the militia that would deal with food security. You'd have units of the militia that would deal with alternative currency. You'd have units of the militia that would deal with uh, uh, monitoring uh, elections and making sure the elections were honest. So you'd mobilize very large segments of the population based upon the skills they already have, and of course there'd be some training that would be added to that, to deal with each one of these areas of direct concern. And this would be done at the local and state level. You wouldn't need direction from Washington. And it would ultimately be subject to control by the local people themselves, who in the long run are beyond bribery and corruption because there are simply too many of them. You can't bribe a whole state, right? A lobbying organization can't get away with that. They can't do it, physically do it. So now you return government in the truest sense to the people themselves. They are governing themselves in these fundamentally important areas. Now, this, of course, requires something of a change of uh, mindset in the average American who's willing to sit back and let his, quote-unquote, representatives deal with these problems. Uh, So I'll grant you that we have psychological difficulty in getting people uh, to think along these lines. And then, of course, the media has thoroughly demonized the word militia. When you hear the word militia, the average person thinks about someone running around in the woods in a camouflage. That's why I asked you to explain it. That's exactly why I asked you to explain it. And that's been done purposely. 
It's been done purposely because these people understand. You read the Constitution, we talk about homeland security. Where does the word security appear in the Constitution? Let's again go back to the big book of instructions. Where does the word security appear? A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. Second Amendment, right? The security of a free state, not the security of a bureaucratic state, not the security of a police state, the security of a free state. And what is the thing the Constitution says is necessary to that? A well-regulated militia. The Constitution does not describe as necessary anything else. It does not say that Congress is necessary. It does not say the president is necessary. It does not say the courts are necessary. The only thing the Constitution says is necessary for any purpose is the militia, or are the militia, because there are 50 of them, right? And necessary to the security of a free state, which is the ultimate goal of the Constitution. And cognates of the word security appear in only two other places in the Constitution, one in the preamble, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, and in the Fourth Amendment, that the people should be secured, their persons, homes, etc. All right? So if you look at the, the just simply the use of the, that word, the noun, the adjective, and the verb, they all come back to this concept of self-government by the militia in a free state. And what is a well-regulated militia? Well, if you look back in the history of this, you'll find a, more than 100 years worth of history prior to the Constitution. It was the organization of every able-bodied, free male in the society. He had something to do in this system. Most of them, uh, they were trained in a kind of paramilitary way because obviously they had problems with the Indians, they had problems with the French, so forth and so on. So their, their immediate focus was on paramilitary activity, and that's why you typically see when the colonial depiction or depictions of colonial militia, it's the fellows out there in the village green you know, with their flintlock uh, rifles practicing, you know, different maneuvers. Uh, but if you apply that principle today, it would look to every aspect of homeland security, and that runs from the paramilitary, if you will, it could be we it could be we were invaded or we had insurrections or whatever, uh, all the way through the economic, all the way down to the political, such as honesty of voting. But it requires people to be organized. And this is what the other side doesn't want. They don't want us to be organized. They want us to be dependent upon them. Vote for our representatives who then represent somebody else, right? Who then provide all these dependency mechanisms from the top down, such as health care, such as social security. You run down the list of these dependency mechanisms. Instead of us controlling our own lives, we find ourselves controlled by them in this system of subordination and superordination. And that's what they want to maintain. So they've been very effective, propagandistically, in demonizing the militia concept. And of course, we've got a lot of people in this country who were you know, claimed to be militia members and so forth who have been helping them on that uh, by approaching this from the entirely wrong perspective. But let's take a look at, at a country that has had a militia structure for hundreds of years. Switzerland. They still do. They're organized to deal with essentially any possible possible catastrophe that could befall them. I want to uh, granted, it's taken them a long time to develop this, right? And we couldn't put that kind of a system in tomorrow. We've got to start from the bottom and work up. But I, there are certain elements that could be put in right away that people would recognize as being absolutely essential. One is how do we deal with this economic crisis? Number two, how do we deal with the consequences of a major economic collapse? 
in terms of stabilizing our own society. Number three, the one we've been talking about, the voting fraud. How do we eliminate that completely? Right within the next election after the statute's passed, that's gone. We no longer have to worry about that. How do we deal with the uh, what I would call uh, natural disasters, which include not simply the Katrina type event, uh, but food shortages? Well, we have a real problem in this country. The very large segments of this country are not capable of providing themselves with food, even for a very short period of time, you know, an emergency supply. And not only that, a lot of the places where we go to the markets, if they're not the farmer's markets, almost all of the fruit and vegetables is from other countries, which is also very scary. I mean, we're well, that's getting... Right. That's what I mean by food security. Food security is our ability to feed ourselves in a crisis situation. And that may be at the family level. I mean, you think of a militia structure, one of the things that every militia member, and that's everybody would be required to do is to build up over a certain period of time enough food and water and so forth and basic commodities to survive for, let's say, 90 days, all right? Real crisis. We can, we can survive in this locality for 90 days. We've prepared for this. And then we have some fallback positions for the next 90 days, 120 days or whatever. So we're looking you know, to a longer period. Totally unprepared in this country. Totally unprepared to deal with any kind of industrial act. What would happen? I mean, I hear this all the time. The great danger of the EMP, right? They yes, the electromagnetic pulse. Or something right. from a freighter, and it, it sets off a nuclear warhead, small-yield nuclear warhead over Kansas or whatever, and the electromagnetic pulse knocks out all the computers and the electronic controls in the country, and we go back to the Stone Age, Certainly possible, right? Well, like, for example, just a few weeks ago on the East Coast, I had friends of mine who were stuck without power for six, seven days. Right. Okay. So we look at that and we say, this is certainly possible. You could have a natural disaster or you could have some kind of attack along these lines. Then what happens? This is my point. Then what? Are we prepared to deal with that even at the most primitive level? Answer, no. And the question is, why not? Well, because our representatives have failed us. The first thing that they're supposed to provide, common defense. If you can't defend your own position at home, what do you have? Nothing in the long run. Right? They haven't done this. And why haven't they done it? Because they've been more interested in serving as whores for the lobbying interests, special interest groups and factions that uh, you know, pay for their campaigns and provide them with golden parachutes when they leave, leave Congress. This has been their concern. And in particular, in not providing the proper militia structure. Now, to that, I have to add, of course, the state legislators. They're just as culpable. In fact, perhaps more culpable because the militia are supposed to be state institutions constitutionally. They're not a federal institution. They may perform some federal functions if they're called upon, but only in certain circumstances. Otherwise, they're entirely a state institution. So if you look at, at this as a failure of leadership, the real failure is at the state level. But then, of course, the real failure is at the individual level, because we haven't told the state representatives to do this. And, you know, this goes back to the 1830s. You had a full-blown uh, militia structure in this country when the Constitution was ratified in every, in every state. And by the 1830s, and people can read this in uh, Justice, Justice Joseph Story's uh, book called Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. He has a section on the Second Amendment. And by the 1830s, people were already saying, well, why do we need to do this anymore? Why do we need to go out to these militia training sessions and so forth? There really are no threats in most of the country. Uh, this is just uh, an imposition on us. 
And he points this out. He said, this is an attitude that is developing. He said, this is the great danger. If people now begin to look at this structure as unnecessary and really not useful, then the next step will be for them to hold it in contempt, and they just won't support it anymore. Isn't that where we are? Yeah, and that's what essentially happened in this country. Uh, of course, you had in the, at the turn of the 20th century, you had a, another aspect of it was the creation of the National Guard, which a lot of people, when you talk about the militia, they say, well, that's the National Guard. Uh, well, the National Guard is actually part of the Army. Uh, but they kind of co-opted this militia concept uh, because it's a bifurcated organization. It has a state component and it has a federal component. But if you read the statutes through, you'll see that it's really a... Uh, a reserve unit of the U.S. Army, which, of course, is a constitutional impossibility for the militia. I mean, the militia is something supposed to be entirely separate from the army because it's the check and balance against the army, potentially. It can't be part of the army. I mean, that's just stupidity. But the average person looks at it. I think the African National Guard fellow or woman looks at it this way. In fact, if you look at their literature, uh, they have a logo, and they use it all the time when you know, National Guard Day comes up in their propaganda they put out. And it shows the embattled farmer, the statue at Concord Bridge, Concord, Massachusetts, from the Revolutionary War. And this is to draw the connection that the National Guard is somehow the um, continuation or the embodiment of the militia, which, of course, is entirely false. That's not true at all. I mean, I'm a member of the militia. You're a member of the militia. Are we members of the National Guard? No, National Guard's a voluntary organization. You join or you don't join, depending on whether you want to. The militia is not. The militia is a compulsory organization. Everybody is in it to some degree. Not everyone does the same thing. And for instance, conscientious objectors wouldn't be required to you know, have a firearm. But there are other things they could do. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions, manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. Why has Homeland Security been indoctrinating people to watch out for constitutional groups, people talking about the Constitution, people trying to enforce the Constitution, etc., protesters, etc.? What is that about? 
Well, it's that they're acting outside. Who, who are their opponents? Who are their enemies? They are acting outside of the Constitution, so everyone who's a constitutionalist is their enemy by definition, right? And they will continue to act outside of the Constitution. Everything that they're planning in this police state that they're setting up with the involvement of the military. I mean, you see this. The involvement of the military is, is the most interesting one to me. It's the I mean, scariest, Clearly actually. unconstitutional. Did you know that they're changing the lights in this country on the streets to be able to pick up voice and to video just people walking on the streets? The lights. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that's the goal is ultimate surveillance. Of course, you ask the question, I don't care how big the computers are. You can have all of that data. This is just going to be overload. Who's going to be able to analyze all of that data? I think it's going to be algorithms, just like high-frequency trading in the markets. <laughs> well, it'll, it'll be done by algorithms. They're breaking down in the markets. All right, you're going to have, you're going to have total breakdown. <laughs> it can't be done that way. I mean, these people are all living in a you know, technological fantasy world. It's all delusional. They can solve these problems with technology. And I'll give you the example of Afghanistan. How long have they been fighting in Afghanistan? Ten years now? Eleven years? Right. All right. With the most technologically sophisticated army and air force in the history of the world, okay? The Afghan insurgents, or whatever you want to call them, people they're fighting over there, are at the level of World War I weaponry, actually below the level of World War I weaponry. They have no planes, certainly no helicopters, they have no heavy artillery, they have no tanks, they have machine guns, rifles, maybe some mortars and uh, rocket-propelled <laughs> grenades and you know, uh, I, uh, improvised explosive bombs that they make plant somewhere. And they haven't been defeated in 11 years. All right? So my question to you is... Do you think when this country <laughs> goes into major economic and social dislocation that these morons in Washington, even with the army in this country, the National Guard, are going to be able to bring order out of it? Well, if you believe that we're over there for the reasons that they've been telling us, I understand what you're saying. Well, I don't care why they're over there. I mean, I don't care why they're over there. The question is, if you look at what they've done, they've proven to be totally incompetent. Now, if you're going to tell me, well, they never intended to beat those people, that's another story. But if the story is we sent those troops over there to beat those insurgents, and in 11 years they haven't beaten them with the most technologically sophisticated armed forces the world has ever seen, you tell me that they're going to, in a crisis in a country of 300 million people, they're going to bring order from, you know, Janet Napolitano is going to press a button and things are going to happen in, in, in Front Royal, Virginia, where I'm living? It's an absurdity. It's all about the illusion going, of they control. Think they're going to do it. What they think they're going to be able to do is somebody in Washington, D.C. I shouldn't mention John Napolitano. That's just you know, who's ever in that chair. That someone will press a button in Washington, D.C., and some kind of control mechanism will work against the citizens in Front Royal, Virginia. It's an absurdity. Technologically speaking, it's an absurdity. That is not going to happen. They think it's going to happen, and they're, they're mired in this delusional world of technology. But all I say is look at Afghanistan. With all the technology they have, they haven't been able to beat these people who are less than a World War I level of weaponry. So how are they going to deal with a collapse of 300 million in the United States? But they're planning to do it. See, this is the whole point. And they're planning to do it, and they know what the opposition is going to be. It's the opposition that's already developing. They're saying, wait a minute, you people are acting outside of the Constitution for whatever reason. Maybe it's uh, stupidity, maybe it's malevolence, we don't know. But you're acting outside of the Constitution, and we have to return to constitutional principles to get a handle on this situation, or else we're going to go into a very serious crisis. They understand that if we ever go back to the Constitution, even 10% of the Constitution, their power will be attenuated. They'll lose most of their power. So, conclusion, they have to stop this. 
opposition in one way or another. So the first step is to demonize the opposition. And the second step is to tell the police, oh, you see someone with a constitutional, constitutional sticker on his car, he's your enemy. All right? Tell the Myrmidons who the enemy is so they know who to, who to shoot. All right? That's what this is all about. And what I think about these guys, if these people in Washington had any sense, Napolitano, I wouldn't be talking to you, I'd be talking to Janet Napolitano right now. She'd be calling me up and saying, how do we get these militia structures reorganized in such a way as to stabilize this country? And in fact, I would tell her, because that's, in a sense, my constitutional duty to tell her. But all I'm saying is, if they had any sense in Washington, that's what they'd be doing. As opposed to this insanity of thinking that they're going to be able to run an entire police state operation from Washington, D.C. on a country this large. And the problem comes down to something that the economists call uh, the problem of rational economic calculation. This is the reason socialism doesn't work. In order to run a socialist society, you have to have a huge amount of information dealing with all the economic aspects of life. And the problem is, most of that information is developed solely at the local level in a particular transaction that goes on, well before the planners in Washington ever find out about it. That transaction goes on, the information filters up, assume that it's accurate, filters up to, to the planners in the central location, and then on the basis of that information, which may be hours, days, weeks old, they come up with some response, some plan. And the grave difficulty in that system is, well, you don't have sufficient information, or on the other side, if you try to collect every scrap of information, you run into this information overload problem. And it's been proven over and over again, these centralized systems just don't work for that reason. Well, that's what they're attempting to set up in terms of security, and that's probably an even bigger problem than the economic problem. The economic problem is, well, how do we produce bread you know, or beans or something and deliver this? The security problem is, how do we control every aspect of everyone's life? Don't you think that that's really the ultimate goal? Yeah, it's the ultimate goal, but I say, once again, these people are delusional. If it can't be done with simply the economic aspects of life, you know, the basic foodstuffs or whatever, how is it going to be done with every aspect of life that they claim impinges on security, which is, from the point of, uh, of the example that you gave, right, they believe that every behavior of every person on the street 24 hours a day is subject to security control. That's why they want all of this surveillance equipment. That's why they want the NSA collecting every email and every telephone conversation or whatever. Right? So they run into this problem to the you know, two orders of magnitude greater than the economic problem. Here's this huge amount of information that they're going to be trying to collect and analyze and then come back and try to control people's behavior on the basis of their interpretation of insufficient information, in a situation in which you're going to have massive economic and social dislocation. And I look at these people and I say, well, just, we're just talking about idiots. And it may be that they're just completely malevolent individuals, they really don't care, but looking at it from, from their perspective, from the fact, well, we want to have stability, I would say, well, you don't do it that way. You do it the way the Constitution set this up, because at least that has the possibility of working. Every security problem is going to be different in different localities. In the rural areas where they can feed themselves, they're probably not going to have a food security problem. But they may still have a currency problem. They may still have a natural disaster problem. They may still have an election problem. Whereas in the urban areas where they can't feed themselves, they have a major food security problem. They may have a water problem. They may have a public health problem. 
because of you know, the, the crowding situation. The security problems that a militia structure would face are going to be different in every locality, and that's why we want to organize it that way. We don't want Janet Napolitano trying to figure out every one of these problems from her little office in Washington, D.C., not to mention she's incompetent. It's just impossible. I have a question to you about FEMA. FEMA, actually, if anything were to happen to the president or the vice president or the Speaker of the House, when does FEMA come in and can take over the country in an emergency? Well, they can't take over the country in an emergency because the Constitution provides, and there are statutes that provide, for succession to these various offices. So you're never going to be without, in theory, a president, maybe without a vice president, but then the Congress would appoint him. I mean, right. I mean, there's a, there's a constitutional mechanism for all of this. And this idea that at some point in time, these nameless, faceless bureaucrats are going to be in control is just, I mean, it's false. I suppose you could, you could imagine a situation where you know, a nuclear bomb goes off in Washington where the State of the Union uh, message is being given so all of the uh, top-ranking people are, are killed, right? Uh, at that point, I think you just have local control takeover. I don't think your state governors or anybody else would pay attention to FEMA. I think that's, a, again, delusional. You know, it reminds me of a few years ago. I can't remember how many years ago, maybe 15 now, 20 years ago. Uh, there were two things that, that came out. One, that the Federal Reserve had put into some cave someplace X billions of dollars of, of paper currency. And the other one was that the IRS had stored tax records and control mechanisms or whatever of theirs in the same kind of facility. And, and the reason for this was that if we had nuclear war, as people emerged from the shelters or whatever, uh, the Federal Reserve would be able to supply them with currency and the IRS would be able to continue to collect taxes. <laughs> and I thought to myself, my God, if we had nuclear war, after the, after nuclear war, do you think anyone would take Federal Reserve notes and do you think anyone would pay taxes? No, it would be a reboot. Yeah, right. What kind of idiots are we dealing with? But this is the mentality of these people. They really can't see the forest for the trees. They are so imbued with this bureaucratic pyramidal structure in which they're up at the top of the all-seeing eye, right? And the rest of us are all on the bottom simply taking orders. And they generate guidelines and restrictions and regulations. And in these crises, we're going to press buttons and we are like robots going to respond. That's not going to happen. So if you're looking at it from the perspective of, well, I'm, you know, I'm somebody in Washington, D.C., and my real goal here is to make sure that the country is going to be stable, the last thing that I'm going to think about is one of these pyramidal structures. Now, they think about it that way, I, ultimately, I think, because it's a power trip that they're on. All right, they are not interested in our welfare. They are interested in maintaining their careers, their positions, their wealth, their social status, whatever. That's what it's all about. We're dealing with basically, uh, you know, borderline at least psychopathic personalities there. And that's why this thing has to start from the bottom up. People have to simply say, I'm not going to deal with these clowns anymore. I don't need the Federal Reserve. It's coming down. We can set up an alternative currency structure in the state of X. I don't need FEMA. I don't need Janet Napolitano. We can set up a militia structure. Oh, and by the way, when we do that, we're going to have a completely different outlook on our elections. Won't that be helpful? So I've been going around the country trying to convince state legislators to do something along these lines. Are they scared? Yeah, that's the main problem. They're afraid. They're afraid of what the 6 o'clock news may say about them. 
They're afraid that some uh, Soros-funded organization will come into the state and defeat them in the next election. And don't think that doesn't happen. I've seen that in a couple of states already, because those uh, Soros-connected organizations are watching for the dissidents, if you will, who are trying to come up and do something at the state level. Uh, They're afraid internally in the legislature that they will lose the support of the key uh, you know, chairman on these committees, and so they won't be able to get some of the other things that they want done for their constituents, and therefore they'll lose the election, perhaps validly, because the constituents will say that you're not getting legislation passed. Uh, some of them have uh, you know, aspirations to higher office. Maybe they want to run for uh, Congress, and they have to do that, obviously, with the support of the party organizations, so they don't want to push the party. Now, give me an example, Montana. Little state, right? <laughs> nice state. Nice state. Was it now? Four years ago, three years ago, three or four years ago, they put in a bill that I wrote for alternative currencies. And this is what I would call an entry level bill. It just set up the mechanism. So the mechanism would be there. And at that time, the legislature was split 50 50 Republican Democrat and went into the committee, and the committee voted nine to nine on strict party lines. And so it didn't get out of committee. Next session, they put the bill in again. Now, in the interim, there had been an election, and the Republicans now had a slight majority. And this time, it got out of committee, and it went to the floor of the House, and it was defeated, I think, 52 to 48. Or it was pretty close, four or five votes. And that was because all the Democrats voted against it, and the rhinos, the Republicans in name only, went in with the Democrats and voted against it. So I said at that point, well, this is pretty close. And the economy is obviously getting worse. It's, uh, people will see the necessity for this bill. And the next session, we'll see it at least passing one house. Well, they just had a meeting. I was told this the other day. Uh, Montana uh, legislators and the um, Republican organization said, there will be no, we're not going to allow an alternative currency bill to come in. It's not going to get out of committee. We just again just forget it. That bill is dead. Don't even bother introducing it. Okay, which tells me that the establishment is terrified of this idea, or they have pressure federally about it. Well, that's what I mean. That that establishment at that level, and they've come down to their people at the state level and told them, "Don't do this." They're terrified of the idea. But what it goes to show you is here's this little state, which most people would say, "Well, Montana, you know, who really cares about Montana?" But apparently they care enough about Montana to make sure that Montana doesn't do this. Because they know if one state does it... It starts. Yeah, it starts. And other states will say, well, of course there's an advantage to having this kind of alternative. Even if the crisis doesn't come tomorrow, it's like an insurance policy. Of course we can do this. It doesn't cost us anything. It's very, very cheap to set one of these things up. So they're desperate to try and stop the very first state from from doing it. And that's, again, a problem. This is what I would call outside influence that comes in, and sometimes it's uh, really negative, and sometimes just stupidity. I've seen some of these uh, alternative currency bills essentially gutted in committee. They get uh, amendments put into them that really make them either worthless or worse than worthless. And then one wonders, well, who's behind that? And sometimes I hear, oh, well, you know, it's some people that, you know, they're actually in favor of sound money, but they thought it should be done this way, and then other times you hear different stories. Uh, but that's the, the major difficulty, and I've been doing this, uh, oh, I don't know, when, from 19, 2002, probably actively, 2003, and promoting it for years before. 
Uh, but no one wants to listen until the economic problems start to develop. Well, let me ask you, what about Utah? Do you think Utah would be a better place? And I realize the NSA just bought up tons of <laughs> land for server farms and more. But prior to that or now, do you think Utah would be a more ripe place for that or not really now? Well, let me tell you two things. One, Utah, let's just focus on Utah for a moment. Utah passed a bill a couple of years back uh, recognizing United States gold and silver coins as legal tender within Utah and uh, essentially telling the courts of Utah uh, to enforce contracts that are payable in gold and silver coinage. So <clears throat> that's a small advantage. I mean, it, it really doesn't do anything more than we already have because those contracts are already legal. Uh, but it does focus the state court's attention on them so we don't have bad decisions coming out of the Utah courts. So will that be a good reason why people should buy your other book, Gold Clauses and Silver Clauses in Financial Transactions, a practical study concerning their origin and use? Would that be helpful? Well, it, it could be, but let me say one thing about the Utah problem is that they're dealing they're still dealing with coinage, which is cumbersome because you don't have coins of sufficiently different denominations to make most transactions. Plus, uh, the coins are a very large value. I mean, you take a one-ounce gold coin. What's a one-ounce gold coin exchanging Federal Reserve notes? 1600 and something, right? Right. So you, that's not the kind of coin that you take down to the grocery store. Even if you go down to the, the smallest gold coin, I think that's about 200 and something. And the silver ounce coin, what's that? That's probably about 30 today, 30, right. something along that line. So you have a problem there. The, the electronic system, which is the one I've been promoting, uh, which I say electronic, it's actually it's gold and silver in a vault, right? Okay. And you make the transactions electronically, and there would be some kind of paper backup. But basically, that works on a weight system, and you can divide the basic unit. The unit could be the grain. The unit could be the gram. Uh, you divide that as small as you want it. You can have a thousandth or ten thousandth or whatever, so you're capable of making small change in that system. And it allows people to use the credit card, debit cards primarily that they already have, so you don't ask them to derange their lives by having to carry uh, you know, coinage around with them. And that kind of a system is it's kind of off-the-shelf technology. You could put that into place you know, within a month or so after the statute was passed. Uh, but the interesting thing about Utah is all of these gold clause arrangements have a practical problem in the question of how they're to be taxed. So let's say you and I make a transaction and I pay you in United States gold eagles, $50 gold eagle. I pay you 10 of those. Is the value of that contract 500, 10 times 50, or is it 10 times 1,600, which is the Federal Reserve note value, let's say, of an eagle today? Well, if you look at the legal history of this, it's 500. This was actually decided by the Supreme Court in the late 1800s because they had a similar situation. They had treasury notes, U.S. treasury notes, which were legal tender paper currency, but were not redeemable in gold or silver at the time. And then they had gold and silver coin that was circulating. And the Supreme Court said, well, Congress has decided that we have a two-tier system, and the way you calculate the value of any particular transaction is you look at the actual money that was used. And if it's gold and silver, you look at the face value, and that's the value of the contract. If it's paper, you look at the face value of that, that's the value of the contract. So that's the rule that the Supreme Court came up with, and it's based upon the concept that Congress 
has the constitutional power to regulate the value of money. Congress has that power, nobody else. All right? So if Congress says a one-ounce gold coin is $50, it's $50. Now, the, the tax people, the IRS people, although you get different answers from them depending on to whom you talk, but generally they take the position that if you, if you received that $50 United States gold coin, it's not $50, it's 1600 or whatever the Federal Reserve note exchange rate is at that time. So that's the problem. As a practical matter, if you're engaging in these kinds of transactions, you essentially have to keep two sets of books, one with a Federal Reserve note value and one with a gold value, a silver value, and then figure out how you're supposed to deal with the tax accounting when you know you have to file your returns. Which I've now, always thought... would be very difficult for people dealing with sales tax. So how, you know, how's a grocery store going to deal with that kind of a problem, right? Which is why I always felt this was an issue. I love gold money and I'm part of gold money. I realized that the transaction side, not the holding side, buying and holding side, but the actual buying goods and services side had to stop because the United States and the powers that be around the world were over-regulating this and making it harder and harder to transact in metals. Right. That's exactly the problem. But even if you didn't use gold money, you're just using coinage. Right. On a regular basis, you've got to maintain these uh, uh, separate accounts in order to deal with the tax problem. And of course, you have tax problems at different levels. You've got local taxes, you've got state taxes, you've got federal taxes. Uh, so, but there's an interesting solution to this, at least at the federal level. And here's a kind of scenario. Here you have Mr. Romney, of course, a Mormon, right? Right. So one would think that maybe what's going on in Utah would have some effect on him positively. And what's he done in the course of, well, I shouldn't blame him, but his people and the Republican National Committee and so forth, have thoroughly alienated all of the Ron Paul-type people by what they've done in the primaries and the caucuses and so forth. So now if I were Mr. Romney, I would come out and I'd say as part of my program in the campaign, I'd say, here's what I'm going to do. I believe in what was done in Utah. is a very sound initiative. We need to have an alternative currency. But what's standing in the way is this tax problem because the IRS is not following the Supreme Court decision. And I, as president, promise you that when I get in, the first thing I'm going to do is call the Commissioner of Internal Revenue and tell him to straighten this out following that Supreme Court decision. I'll send him a letter, you know, follow-up letter. Because I have the ability to do that as president. I don't need the courts. I don't need the Congress. I can give you an alternative monetary system, as it were, by phone call. Seriously? How about by executive order? Not necessarily. Well, you can be executive order. I would just call the guy up and say, hey, this is what you're going to do. Oh, and by the way, if you don't do that, don't bring any enforcement actions to the Department of Justice. Don't come to us ever in the Department of Justice and expect us to enforce your claim that these gold transactions should be calculated on the basis of Federal Reserve. We're not going to do it, all right? So this would change overnight. If the Department of Justice had the well, courage the to stand. He's, right? he's going to appoint the Attorney General, right? Right. He's the president. So, as, But this is the president enforcing the law because the Supreme Court has already ruled on this. Article 2. Section 3, the president shall take care of the laws be faithfully executed. The Supreme Court's already told us how these laws of Congress with respect to currency should be enforced. And now the president's simply going to enforce them. So I look at this and I say, you know, this is not something that is, is uh, pie in the sky in the sense of, oh, we can never do this. A, we could do it at the state level by adopting an alternative currency. And at least with a lot, a lot of transactions would probably go on that people would be willing to pay uh, you know, the tax cost, because they'd want to secure gold and silver income. Tax cost would be something that, compared to the uh, potential losses from collapse of the whole paper money system, would be relatively small. 
And of course, at the state level, you could set up this kind of correct uh, valuation. There's no reason that the state can't say that for purposes of its tax system, you're going to value a gold clause transaction at the face value of the coinage. It's only this federal problem. But that can be corrected simply by the President of the United States. And I would think if I were Romney, given all the bad publicity I have gotten, and given the fact that this will be a very close election no matter how you cut it, and given the fact that what I've done to the Ron Paul and libertarian-type people uh, has been rather shoddy, and they're probably going to sit on their hands, they're probably not going to vote for Obama, but they're not going to vote for me either, uh, I might be able to woo a lot of these people back by making this promise. Here's what I'll do. And you know I can do it. This is not something where I, I'm dependent upon Congress or I'm dependent upon the courts or I'm dependent upon the UN or NATO or something. I can do this as president. I can do this the very day I'm inaugurated. Because I take it the Commissioner of Internal Revenue will be to the same person. He won't have resigned by then. The very day I'm inaugurated, this will happen. Interesting. It's fantastic. Do you really think that's what's I don't know, I don't know if he would, but I, if I were Romney advisor and I heard this proposal, I'd say, you know, we have nothing to lose here. Because we can sell this concept of alternative currencies as simply an insurance policy. We're not requiring people to do this. This is just something they can do if they think it's to their economic advantage. And we're simply imposing the tax consequences the Supreme Court has already told us should be imposed. Can you tell us about the gold money bill at goldmoneybill.org? Well, there are a lot of gold money bills floating around now because people have taken various stuff that primarily I've written and cut and pasted. Is that your website, by the way? One of them? Probably, yeah. Probably? I like Probably. I don't know. I mean, it, it, <laughs> the electronic gold bill uh, was put into New Hampshire, it was put into Montana, thinking uh, at least it got into the committees. Uh, it was proposed in a number of other states. People drafted bills. I don't know how far they went. So that's one that's out there. Uh, there's what I call an entry-level bill, which is something along the lines of the Utah bill. I think it's it's much better than the Utah bill, actually, uh, that was put in in South Carolina. So if you look up the sound money bill, sound money, sound currency legislation in South Carolina, uh, I think it was Senator Pitts who was the supporter of that, major supporter. Uh, you'll get the text of it, at least, and you should look to the original text. I mean, the thing was amended, and they ruined it. Uh, but that's, again, one of these bills that says uh, gold silver coinage can be used and the state courts have to enforce these contracts as written. And then it provided for, and this is my next step in all of these, is to provide for a study commission, the legislature to set up a study commission for the purpose of discussing the next step, which is the actual alternative currency step. And I think this is necessary because it's an educational problem we have with these state legislators. Forget the ones that are just afraid. I mean, that's another problem. That's a kind of personal problem they have. But when I've talked to a lot of these people, the first thing that comes out of their mouths is, well, this really isn't going to happen. Right? We don't, it's not as bad as you're telling me it is. We don't need this. And so they have to be educated about that. And I've often said... To to the ones I've talked to, I said, you tell me how many hours you'll give me, and I'll bring people from all over the country, and maybe from outside of the country as well, right. to sit and testify and show you what the problem is, right? And you better have an extra strength set of depends on. You hear this <laughs> testimony, okay? You'll need them. Uh, but then the next line, if they're willing to accept the 
the possibility that this is a serious problem. The next line is, well, this isn't really a state issue. This is something for the Treasury. This is something for the Federal Reserve to solve. And then I take an Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin and tender and payment of debts. I say, well, no, it's your problem, sir, because you have this power, and you have to exercise that power for the benefit of your constituents. And then, of course, the next level after that, we get into the substance of particular bills. Right, they'll be arguing back and forth about this, that, and the other thing. There's not enough gold in the world. I mean, all sorts of silly stuff that I hear. I mean, it's below the high school level. I mean, these people just don't know anything. It's just incredible how economically ignorant they are. Um, so that's the idea of, of the Legislative Study Commission. They put in the innocuous part of the bill, which says, you can make a gold-cost contract, and the state courts will enforce it. Okay, that's great. We can do that already, but this is now a firm statement of it. And then we get a commission set up of legislators and essentially educate them from the ground floor up on this and then hand them the bill. See, my goal in all of this is never to let them draft the bill. They don't know what they're doing. It's like giving a blind man a machine gun in Grand Central Station at rush hour. Extremely (laughs) dangerous proposition. All right. Uh, You don't want them to draft the bill. You want to educate them to the necessity to have the bill, and you want to hand them the bill. Say, this has been drafted to deal with all of these problems. Pass it. That's what we want. And then to get, and this is the real problem I see, is to get the grassroots pressure on these legislators to pass even the initial bill, the initial bill with the study commission, and then to deal with the recommendations that are going to come out of that study commission. And once again, we come back now to the problem of are people willing to participate in this? Right. And also my question to you would be, right now, given your current take on what's happening in the United States, where things are really at on a whole systems level, do you think there's adequate time to have this discussion process? Do you think we have time for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think this this could all be done in a year, 18 months. And I don't think you're – I mean, these, these collapses don't occur overnight. I mean, look at the, the Weimar inflation as a classic example. I mean, they had a lot of inflation up to during the war and then after the war up to 23. And then they had the period from June to the end of November 1923 when they blew the currency out. And that was six months, all right? But they'd already had a couple of years, three or four years of inflation, serious inflation before that. So before we have the, what I anticipate will happen, the hyperinflationary collapse, we're going to have a series of steps that will occur. There's a lot of you know, emergency powers. Look at Title 12 of the United States Code, Section 95A, if you want to be scared, which is a holdover from the Roosevelt administration, which gives the Secretary of the Treasury the power to promulgate regulations and take over the entire banking system. They haven't used that one yet. The regulations are probably in the drawer somewhere. I mean, they've probably been prepared. But they haven't come out and tried to use that one yet. And that's a pretty serious statute. It says for every... Uh, Failure to abide by the regulations, which I guess would be every transaction in a bank, 10 years in prison and $10,000 fine. How come that piece that you just shared isn't public knowledge? I don't know. It's in the statute books. It's been there since Roosevelt. But it's there. That's all I'm saying. So we can expect that as this crisis matures, they will begin to try to mitigate it in some way by use of these so-called emergency powers that they have. And they will all fail just as they failed in the Roosevelt. They will all fail. So we'll have a period of time during which things will be getting sequentially worse and the economy will be essentially strangled uh, by these 
centralized regulatory programs. And my assumption is that as the screws tighten on people, they'll say, oh, we've got to do something. We've got to save ourselves here. And they'll be looking towards some of these uh, directions. I don't call them solutions, directions that I've been proposing. So I don't think it's as if it's going to happen next Monday. And if we don't get it done over this weekend, you know, forget it. I think we still have some time. But we don't have a great deal of time. It's not a 10-year project. Right. That's why I'm saying to you, it feels like an eminence. If it's going to happen, we're in the window now. Right. But if we do it, and again, this is the point I make to people. If we pass this statute, especially if we go to the electronic gold system, where we can take we can take the I mean we can take the gold money technology they used to use, right? Plug that in, right? Right. License it and plug that in. Every state would have to have a depository where the gold and silver would actually sit. But other than that, physically, we could plug this in. Thirty days, sixty days, it would be done. It would be up and running. Because you pass the statute and you tell everybody. You know, you have two weeks to get your debit card. Go online or telephone or, you know, come into the office or whatever, fill out the paperwork, and we'll send, send you a debit card. How long does it take you to get a credit card from the time you fill out the application? It's probably about two weeks, right? Right. Credit card comes back in the mail. So now everyone's got a debit card. Uh, so they're capable of using the system within a couple of weeks of the statute. And then if they want to liquidate their Federal Reserve note accounts and transfer it to gold and silver, of course, they can do that. Now, the businessmen... You give them a little bit more time, and you tell them within 45 days, 60 days of the passage of the statute, you are going to have alternative prices for all your goods and services, Federal Reserve note price and a gold or silver price, or gold and silver price if you want. And we'll give you the software so you can do this. We tie you into the state depository. You'll be getting you know, minute-by-minute uh, quotes so, uh, on the exchange rates between gold, silver, and Federal Reserve notes. So this is not going to be a great burden to you. You're all operating with barcodes anyway. But do it. We're not going to require you to make transactions in gold and silver. That's between you and your customers. But we want you to be capable of doing this. So at that point in time, say 90 days after the passage of the statute, everyone in the state of Gizmo, is capable of going completely off the Federal Reserve system. Yeah, they're wired for sound. Yeah. When, I'm sure you've... 90 t- days. So I don't care how fast this crisis comes. 90 days, and we can walk away from it. Now, the militia is a little more complicated because, we, have, as I say, we have to do that by essentially a phasing-in process. The average person simply isn't ready to do this. And I would structure it on the basis of setting up what they used to call independent companies, which is essentially volunteers. I mean, we're all members of this thing. And we tell the people, if you don't want to perform initially, you're going to pay 25 or $50 a year for an exemption. And we'll make you take one or two courses. You can take a firearm safety course. You're going to have to take a, a Red Cross uh, emergency medical course so that everyone is doing something. But if you don't want to do anything beyond that, you pay $50 a year for your exemption. And all of that money, now we're talking about everyone in the state, right? All of that money now goes into a militia fund. And then we allow in each county and we could do this probably through the sheriff's department because we have an elected sheriff. He could become what they call the county lieutenant. We allow for people to organize independent companies, and these would be based upon skill sets. So let's say we had a region, New Orleans we were talking about. You'd probably have independent companies there that would be heavy construction, and their main interest would be what are we going to do to stabilize the city if we have a repeat of the Katrina-type episode or some of these other problems, maybe oil problem, right, oil slick problems. So you set up these independent companies, and I think there are plenty of people who, if they were given the opportunity to do this, and they were funded, because now we're talking about all this money coming in from the exempted people, right, 
and they were funded, would immediately take up the slack, as it were. And once we had a few of these in various counties in the state, the average person would look at this and say, well, my God, it works. And now we could begin to expand that process to bring the average people in on a more or less compulsory basis. But that would go over several years. But the initial step in that, in terms of the immediate problem that you had in your own locality, whether it was food security or disaster relief or whatever, you could bring people in, I think, on a very quick basis. And then number two, you'd certainly have enough people to deal with this election problem. I mean, how many people do you need in each polling place? You know, a dozen people, maybe, at the most, to count the ballots. Right? So you could certainly get uh, those people. And you'd solve the alternative currency problem within 90 days anyway. The neat thing listening to you and talking with you is that you've been thinking about this on a whole systems level for a long time, and you live in the doability of this. It's really vibrant and alive and clear to you. And the way you articulate it, it's alive and vibrant and clear to us. The thing is that you've been living in the doability of this for a long time. And for many people, they're just hearing it. They're just hearing that we're not victims, we're not stuck. We're not powerless, and there's direct action and clear direction to be taken, but it's the first time many people will be hearing this. Well, there has to be a first time for everything. <laughs> I'm sorry we don't have this system. And actually, you know, if I had thought about this more clearly, I might have been telling people all of this in 1975 or you know, 1980 when I was t- telling them about the alternative currencies. I've been talking about this for a long time, all right? And I finally got around to the militia by recognizing, well, wait a minute. You're never going to be able to set up these alternative currencies in time, once again, it's a time problem, unless we can require everyone to participate. Oh, and by the way, we also have this other problem which we need everyone's participation in. But that's the key to the, why I came to the militia problem, was we have this homeland security problem, but the basic homeland security problem is the money one. That's the thing that can kill us overnight in a sense. And the only way you can compel everyone to participate in that is through the militia structure. Because once we've passed the militia bill, item one would be, well, all you folks have to engage effectively in the alternative currency program. You all have to be capable of doing this. But I would think it would be a, a kind of a ray of optimism to people to hear, wait a minute, there is something we can do. We don't have to depend upon Janet Napolitano. We don't have to depend upon Nancy Pelosi. We don't have to depend upon Romney or Obama, whatever figurehead they put in the, in the White House. We don't have to depend upon the Supreme Court, and obviously the latest decision tells us we can't depend upon them. We can do this ourselves, right at our own local and state level, and in some states we probably can get control of the legislature. They probably will be responsive if we can get up enough grassroots pressure to them. Not California, not Massachusetts, not New York, okay, forget those for the time being. But they'll come around in the long term because they have to. What we need to find is one relatively uh, decent state. I would have hoped that Virginia would be one because we have a lot of so-called conservatives in the House of Delegates, and we have a so-called conservative governor and a pretty conservative attorney general. I would hope, but there's not much movement here. Uh, but even a small state like Montana, Idaho, Oklahoma, whatever. How about Arizona? Or Arizona, sure. How about Arizona? Of course, they have other problems that the militia could be directed towards, which is immigration, for instance, right. the whole illegal, illegal alien problem. And, and they'd probably look at it uh, from that perspective as being very valuable. But my view of this is 
once one state does it, the full force of the economic situation is going to be behind it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's if always. I'm, if I'm wrong on all these these kind of uh, uh, pessimistic, I hate the word. You know what a pessimist is? He's an optimist who knows the facts, right? <laughs> all, these, all these pessimistic views of what's going to happen with the, the monetary and banking system. Well, if, if we're wrong, then setting up this alternative really doesn't do anybody any harm. It's there. And, it, it, you know, it's an insurance policy that we're not drawing upon because we don't have the accident. Well, I love parallel processing, and I like the concept of it, and I like the application of parallel processing, which means that you have a parallel system working that's connected, but it's separate in the sense that if something goes wrong with the existing system, you can still function and do what you need to do. Exactly, and, and that's, that's the point I make to people. I say, look, if, if these pessimistic predictions are right, and the Federal Reserve System, the, the world fiat money system, goes into severe crisis. And I don't care whether it's hyperinflation or depression or depression coupled with hyperinflation, all these different scenarios. But severe crisis. You're going to have a breakdown in the price structure. And that means a breakdown in the delivery of goods and services. And that means social chaos, right? So you absolutely have to have an alternative if the worst-case scenario occurs. Why would you not do that, given that we're in the worst-case scenario? I mean, little children in Bangladesh walking by an Internet cafe know about the fragility of the world monetary system. There's nobody who doesn't know about this. You've got Russia, China, was it South Africa, India, and Brazil talking about an alternative currency. You've got the Russians and the Chinese dealing with their own currency. They're going to back the dollar out of their transactions. You've got the Russians and the, uh, the Chinese and the Japanese doing the same thing. You've got the Iranians starting to talk about selling oil for gold. What do people think this means, except the breakdown of the present monetary system? Don't you think that there is an obvious intent to somehow eventually extract the dollar out of the scenario and create a one-world currency? I mean, oh, sure. it, you've had enough people stand up in different power structures actually declaring this. I think when they start to declare it over and over and over, we have to pay attention. Well, yes, and if you look at the history of the United States, it's always worked that way. Uh, that they go, as the banking system goes into crisis at the lower level, they go to a higher level. So you, you had the National Currency Act, National Banking Act, and the Civil War, and that system was kind of a cartelized system. But it didn't have a lender of last resort. It went into crisis, so they went to the Federal Reserve System. And the Federal Reserve System now is in crisis. Well, what's going to be the lender of the last resort for the Federal Reserve System when you, know, you go to hyperinflation? And the answer is, oh, we'll go to the world currency system. Right? We'll expand this pyramid to the next level. And, of course, that centralizes control even worse exactly. than now. Exactly. It's part of the plan, all right? But I look at that and I say, wait a minute, they've given us an opportunity here that we never had before in the breakdown of the Federal Reserve System. And they're a long way from setting up this alternative currency system because they don't have agreement among all the major nations. That's obvious. I don't think the Russians and the Chinese are going to sign on to an IMF controlled by London and New York for political reasons, all right? You could get away at the end of World War II with the Federal Reserve System becoming an, essentially the world reserve currency by default, because this country had never been bombed or invaded, and all the rest of the world had. There really wasn't any choice. Right? Well, what happens now? There isn't really an alternative currency out there. They'll have to create one. 
And then they'll have to inject that into all the national economies so that that becomes the currency that we use for our day-to-day transactions. But if, That's not an easy thing to do. Unless you crash the economies. Unless well, okay, the, crash the economy, but why am I going to take this foreign paper currency? What's the price structure? You crash the economy, now your price structure is deranged, and they come in and say, well, we're going to give you this other currency. I say, well, what's the, what's the loaf of bread cost in this other currency? We well, have no prices. Right, it's all made-up value. Huh? In other words, it'll be all synthetically created value. Well, they can make up whatever numbers they want. Exactly. Will the market will the market clear? Am I going to take this for bread? Am I going to take this for my good and for the service that I'm producing? Am I going to exchange something real for this paper currency when I don't know what the price of bread is in this paper currency? Every other one of these situations has occurred with a kind of parallel currency. Even the Federal Reserve System, they brought that thing in on a gold standard. It was redeemable in gold. They had to have huge gold reserves, 35% gold reserve, 40% gold reserve. All right? So you had paper money circulating simultaneously with gold. Then they had the crisis in 32. Roosevelt seizes the gold. All right? But at that point, you had people thinking in terms of dollar prices payable in Federal Reserve notes. So you didn't have a collapse of the price structure. Then they did the same thing with silver in the late 1960s, all right? So they removed silver from the system as well. But you still had a price structure that people were using paper currency. Well, when this paper currency goes down, what's the alternative that people are going to be using? Well, why do they keep printing articles or writing articles about the special drawing rights of the IMF, this basket of currencies? And Well, because that's what they hope to use. I have no doubt that they think that they can put this thing in. I'm just saying they have terrific problems that they have. I don't think they've... Well, they're not admitting. Let me, they may have be, be facing this in the back room and talking about it, but they're certainly not admitting it. And the problem is, right now, if they wanted to bring in a new currency, that's what they'd have to do. The same thing they did with the euro. You had all of these countries in Europe that had each one its own currency. And then they bring in the euro, and they have parallel prices in each country. So in Italy, you had prices in lira and euros at the same time. Why? Because they were trying to show people what the price structure in euros was, develop a a euro price structure. And then once the euro price structure has stabilized, now they can withdraw the lira, they can withdraw the peseta, they can withdraw the mark, whatever, right, from the system, and now you're in euros. But they had a parallel pricing structure. Right. Well, we don't have a parallel pricing structure in special drawing rights, you know, or gizmo units, whatever they would call these things. (laughs) And until we do... There's no way they can make this change, at least not without tremendous dislocation. I don't think they want tremendous dislocation. I mean, I hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, they'll crash the system. I don't think they want to crash the system because the political implications of that are dire. They don't really know what will happen. I think they want controlled demolition. They want to be able to remove the Federal Reserve unit and substitute this other thing that they will be able to manipulate at a high level and we will have no ability to control. I mean, right now, theoretically, we have a legal ability to control the Federal Reserve through Congress. Federal Reserve is a statutory creature of Congress. Congress could pass amendments and control the Federal Reserve. But I have a question about that, because I watched Greenspan say that the Federal Reserve is not answerable to anybody. Well, that's just nonsense. Why did he say that? I don't know. I mean, they're not. I don't know why. I mean, they, they love to believe that they're an independent body, Right. But, I mean, they're no more independent of Congress than my little finger is independent of my hand, all right? They're a statutory creation. And Congress tomorrow, Section 30 of the original Act, Congress retains the right to repeal, alter, or amend this act at any time. 
Right? They can do anything they want with the Federal Reserve System. All I'm saying is the Federal Reserve System has gained so much real control over the economy that Congress is either bought off or terrified by them. So I think that maybe that's what Greenspan means. As a practical matter, they can do any damn thing they want. I mean, he literally said we're a private organization. We're not answerable to anybody. Well, that's baloney. There are 12 Federal Reserve regional banks, which are private corporations, chartered by Congress. But that charter is controlled by Congress. All right? There's a board of governors, which Greenspan sat on. And that's a board that was created by Congress and can be removed by or changed by Congress at any point in time. But as a practical matter, I can see why they could say... We're independent because, as a practical matter, Congress is afraid to do anything. But at least in theory, the American people are capable of controlling this Federal Reserve System. But as soon as you move the monetary system to the international level, the supranational level, now what control? Well, you don't even have a theoretical control at that point. I guess I would be scared to ask you what you think of the European Union at this point. (laughs) Well, I think it's going to go bust. It's another one of these central planning systems that simply can't work. And in fact, I would, my prediction would be the Germans and the Russians and the Chinese getting together. Very interesting. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. I mean, if I were a German politician, that's what I'd be thinking about right now. How, how can we get uh, what uh, during Bismarck's time, he promoted a thing called the Dreikaiserbund, which was the alliance among Germany, that was one Kaiser, Austria, Austria Hungary, that was another Kaiser, and Russia. That was the third Kaiser, the Tsar, the Three Kaiser League, all right? And his view was, well, this would be the dominant power in the world if we, you know, just allied ourselves and had a permanent alliance. And the great mistake was, of course, that uh, when Wilhelm II came in, he threw Bismarck out, and then he ended up, you know, Russia sided with the the French and the English against him. Uh, But now, if you look at it, that same thing makes a hell of a lot of sense. Germany is a dominant power in Europe, economically, financially. Russia is, uh, well, but they're a nuclear power, and they have a lot of resources, especially in the oil gas area. Indeed. And China is obviously the up-and-coming producing power in Asia. And the Japanese will go along with them if they get over Fukushima. Do you think that the renembe will be the primary currency of the world at one point? Well, uh... Your gut feeling? No. <laughs> Is that a wish? No, <laughs> I, hope. No, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's another one of these debt-based paper currencies. And what I see happening, what I hope is going to happen, is the collapse of all debt-based paper currencies and the world going back to a, a real gold-silver system where the unit is a weight of gold and weight of silver. And that's it. And everything else is treated as some kind of debt, which is not going to be honored as, as currency. And that's the great failing in this whole system was the conversion of debt into currency. Debt, I mean, the currency has to be the ultimate asset. Money has to be the ultimate asset. It's got to be a real thing, not somebody's debt, which can be canceled in one way or another, refusal to pay or just repudiation or whatever, however you go, uh, especially because debt can be, can be issued infinitely, as the Federal Reserve System is proving to us. Infinite amount, trillions, trillions. Well, how can you have a stable price structure under those circumstances? Impossible. And all price structures depend upon a monetary unit. So all, all prices are monetary prices. We don't deal in barter. It's too complicated. You wish we did? No. Well, money was a great invention. But the point is it has to have a certain element of stability tied to it because otherwise the prices are not real. 
And if the prices are not real, then allocation of goods and services, especially at the capital level, we're allocating into production, are falsified. And as the, you know, at the margin, you have a huge amount of waste. That's what typically happens with these bank cycles, right? They're pumping in money into the economy, and people are investing that in the wrong places because they have too much money. They're not responding to real market signals. And then at some stage down the line, the market finally says, hey, this has been a huge waste. And you have a depressionary phenomenon. The prices collapse. I realize our conversation has evolved greatly. But between the credit default swap, different derivatives, and high-frequency trading, and the ability to short stocks, don't you think that all these mechanisms have contributed to a synthetic, dangerous economy of not real goods and services? Yeah, it's highly unstable. It's not based on reality. So do you actually think... It's gambling. Yeah. Most of it's simply gambling. And gambling on what? It's political guesses. Which way interest rates are going to go? And what is that tied to? What's tied to the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve, these two political bodies, right? It's not tied to real economy. So all that means is when the, when the collapse comes, it'll be order of magnitude greater than ever before because they've thrown all these other elements of irrationality. I mean, the derivatives thing is always something that amazed me. Why didn't they simply say, these aren't enforceable? They're gambling contracts. In most states, gambling contracts are not enforceable. Yeah, you can make them. And you can get them paid off the same way you can go to your bookie and, see them and make an illegal gambling contract. But you can't come into the courts and enforce these things. So now you wipe out that huge amount of liability, at least from the point of view of the Federal Reserve doesn't have to cover it, Treasury doesn't have to cover it. Those people may lose too bad. They, you know, they bet on the wrong horse. But what we've done is, and this is the real problem, we've made the whole country hostage to this corrupt financial system by tying the corrupt financial system into the political system. We've got, we've got integration of bank and state, incestuous integration of bank and state. And when I say bank, I'm including all these financial speculators, all the clients of the banks, right? Tied in directly to the Treasury. And the Treasury then telling us, or the, the political class telling us, that we're liable, we the average American are liable for the gambling debts of these speculators. Because the speculators are in a position to buy and sell Treasury bonds, right? This is the great problem. And what we should simply do is kiss it off and say, we can't live with this. We're going to have a collapse. We may as well have it now rather than later. But we have to take some steps to mitigate the harshness of it. And one of them is we have to have an alternative currency. The other is we have to organize ourselves. A lot of rebuilding has to be done in this country. So we have to organize ourselves to deal with that. And thirdly, as we've said before with the elections, we have to have honest elections. We can't have these criminals these psychopaths constantly being elected simply because they can get money from George Soros and then rig the voting machines. What do you think about the new law enacted so that corporations can give as much money as they want to the people that are running? Well, a corporation is not a human person. Corporation is an artificial entity. Right. And a corporation is a privileged status. I mean, for instance, you and I, we could get together with five other people, form a joint venture and go out to the world and represent ourselves as a joint venture and sell products. But if one of those products injured somebody, we could all be individually sued. All right? Right. We're all individually liable. Now, what a corporation basically does, does is to say, well, you investors, you joint venturers can buy stock, and therefore you essentially own this corporation – but the corporation is a separate legal entity, and if it sells a product and the product hurts somebody, the injured individual can sue the corporation but can't sue the stockholders. So you've got a layer of immunity built in, legal immunity built in for you stockholders. 
And they say, well, the benefit of this is that it helps you know, to create pools of capital because the stockholders now have this immunity. Yes, but it's a special privilege given to the corporation by whom? By the government, all right? It's not a natural right of people to evade immunity, to, to uh, excuse me, evade responsibility by claiming immunity for harms that they do to third parties. Right? There's, no, there's no such natural right, right? So it's a privilege that's been granted by government. Well, if the government can grant that privilege, it can condition that privilege and say, yes, you can have this kind of an organization that will give you limited liability and some of these other you know, tax benefits or whatever. But we're not going to allow you to spend money on political campaigns. We're not going to allow you to use this specially privileged entity to influence political campaigns. No problem. And I don't understand why, other than the Supreme Court's living in la-la land, why they didn't say that. I mean, you may have a problem with unions, although some unions are incorporated, because they're private associations. And you ask the question, well, you know, if all the members agree that the union, this little group of leaders, should spend money on a political campaign, isn't that the same as the member spending the money? But the problem is, of course, in any big organization of that kind, you tend to have dissociation between the leadership group and the members because they really are not a democracy. Uh, so you had a lot of legislation passed to limit and control the ability of unions to spend their members' money on politics. They have to set up separate political action committees and so forth. But at least the union structure is closer to the idea of the individual becoming involved in politics by spending money. Cooperation is not. This is a completely different situation. What was the purpose of passing this law, to be able to move money into these corporations so nobody knows where anything came from and you can buy your candidate? Yeah, well, it's also an aggregation of money. It's a heck of a lot easier to, to take money out of one huge account than it is to go around and ask a lot of people to pony up uh, you know, a small portion of that. Yeah, but then nobody is limited to, what, $1,500 of campaign contributions? What's the amount that an individual used to be capped at? Oh, I don't know. It's probably about that. Okay. The idea is you can aggregate that in some way, right? You get a lot of people each to contribute $1,000, $2,000, whatever it is. But I just think the principle of the thing is what interests me. The very idea that they're refusing to see the fundamental legal distinction between this artificial entity and an individual person. And, you know, the same thing happened in the application of the 14th Amendment way back when. This question came up before the Supreme Court whether a corporation was a person for purposes of the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment. And the Supreme Court decision is fascinating because that was the first question in this particular case. The corporation was raising the 14th Amendment. And the first question in the case was, well, is this even a person that can raise the 14th Amendment? Let's not even get into the substance of the claim. <laughs> can they even raise this? And it was presented in the briefs, the big issue. And the Supreme Court said simply, well, we're not even going to deal with that. We, we consider them they are, and we're going to go on to the substance of the case. Now, obviously, there was a fix in there, right? But it happened. And it goes back to this whole question, and you, you see this all the way back to the time of Alexander Hamilton, is what could be called corporate interests, these big financial interests, trying and being successful in infiltrating and controlling the government as part of their business plan. And in fact, it was Hamilton that made this point in terms of the uh, assumption of the, of the debt, the Revolutionary War debt, and his whole mercantilist theory. He said, we need to have, we the government, 
we need to have a, a close relationship between the Treasury and these financial interests in order to support the government. The other side of that coin was, of course, if you have that very close relationship, then they'll be in control of the government. The government will not be an independent entity dealing for the benefit of all the people. It will be part of the business plan of these corporate interests. And that's what we have seen expanding and expanding and expanding in this country to the point now where corporate interests dominate everything that's done in Congress, apparently in the Supreme Court as well. Well, where does that leave us? Well, these are privileged entities, entities created by the government. So you've got the government creating entities that then turn around and control the government. See the fascinating point about this and the ironic nature of this? It's insidious. Yeah. So we have what, in the technical sense, this is a corporativist government. That's the alliance between private corporate power and the political structure. And in fact, this is what Roosevelt tried to do openly in 1933, National Industrial Recovery Act. They created these things called the code authorities, which were associations of all the corporations within particular areas of production. So they had one for coal, they had one for steel, they had one for for poultry, for heaven's sakes. Uh, And went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court at that time said, wait a minute, what you're doing here is you're transferring political and legislative power, really, to these private entities. Said You can't do this. And they said, this is unknown to our law. That's the exact quote. This is unknown to our law, unconstitutional. They threw this out in 1933. Well, that was because Roosevelt openly came out and promulgated this statute. But we have the same effective system now that just isn't a National Industrial Recovery Act that says it honestly, but it's the way the system actually works. And a lot of it's tied, of course, to the military-industrial complex, the, the treasury-financial complex, and we have these big... Uh, conglomerates, if you will, of special interests. And they pretty much dominate everything that goes on in Congress. The farm areas, Monsanto, Cargill, and so forth. Uh, there's another one that they've manipulated and you know, are crushing out the independent farmer. Uh, and all of these will eventually turn out to be very, very similar in structure to what the National Industrial Recovery Act set up. You just won't call them the code authority for agriculture, but there they'll be. And they'll have a lot of statutes passed which will protect them, the way Monsanto does with its uh, you know, genetically modified uh, seeds and so forth and so on. So uh, effectively, they'll have this kind of power. They just will have done it piecemeal. Well, it's incrementalism, which is the most dangerous because yeah. it's imperceptible yeah. by most of us. And, and so we've gotten to what could be correctly called the fascist system in the true economic term, fascism, which is precisely now, Mussolini's system. He assumed that the government would control the corporations which I think was his uh, naivete. But what we've seen is, in reality, the corporations control the government because they're the ones that dominate the electoral process and decide who becomes the senator, who becomes the president, for that matter. So those are not independent figures in this system. And we're left, you know, playing this game of voting for people who have been the Stalin ballot. I mean, they tell us who to vote for, right? And And then they rig the election among those people, okay? But basically, we've got a one party system here. And they give us the Stalin ballot, and these are the people we get to vote for, and that's it. If you don't like that, too bad. And then they go and dominate the people that they have caused to be elected, get the legislation passed incrementally, and then various agencies, EPA, FDA, whatever, are all working for these people, Department of the Interior working for these people. And then we're left uh, with nothing. 
essentially. We have no control over our lives at all. It's all controlled by these corporations, and the corporations ultimately control the government, so we can't even come at them from the top down and try to change the legislation. You know what's so interesting? Even during the election time when the speeches are going on, I always looked at who is controlling the questions that are asked to these candidates. Well, apparently there's an election commission that does this. I always felt that the questions that were asked the candidate were moronic, that were not deep enough to extract real motives and intent from the people running. Well, even to extract from them their understanding of what the problems are. Right. You have to define the problem before you can talk about the solution. And there's the difficulty. I mean, this last go-round, the only one that ever talked about a problem, real problem, was, of course, Ron Paul. And they marginalized him in a hurry, mainly because he was talking about the most serious problem of all, which is the financial banking problem. And you've got, what is it now, Romney's biggest contributor is Goldman Sachs. Right. I heard Goldman is actually handling both ends of it, contributing to Obama, too. They were Obama's biggest contributor in the last election. Right. And now they're Romney's biggest contributor. Oh, yeah, they buy both sides. There's no question about that. I mean, they know how to, how to hedge bets, right? I mean, there's like people that play black and red simultaneously at roulette, <laughs> right? You always win. Right? And later on, you find out what the value of that is. But it may be that they want Romney in there now because Obama has done such a terrifically poor job even in uh, perception, kind of the mask has been torn off this guy, right? Yeah, but what do you say and what do you think about the people who say, look, you know, you're being too tough on Obama. He inherited something. You know how every president, they say, leave that president alone because they've just inherited the last four or the last eight years of this other person. Not that there isn't some legitimacy to that, whatever group gets in. But my question is, what do you say about that? Well, what's he done? I mean, he ran for the office, right? He knew what the problem was. This wasn't something that was hidden. It didn't appear the day after he was inaugurated. He said that he had some approach to dealing with it. What's he done? All right, he had a chance. He could, couldn't do it. That's all it tells me. I mean, I don't necessarily blame the guy and say, you know, he should be sent to uh, Guantanamo or something. He failed. Maybe it's insoluble. I don't know. But he failed. Do we continue with him? He's well, proven to be a failure. Yeah. It has nothing to do personally with the man. Right, no, I understand. He's just, he's just proven not to be competent. Well, he hasn't even identified the problem, really, but he certainly hasn't solved it. I don't know that Romney would, but, you know, this is, a, again, the situation. You've got the rhinoceros versus the hippopotamus. Which one are you going to vote? <laughs> right? Do you think that, I mean, I'm sure you're going to say the same thing, come from that Bush didn't solve problems either? Bush was one of the worst problems we ever had. Right, I understand. So it doesn't matter what the name is, what the party is. Everybody that is coming in is not getting it. Yeah, what I want to hear from one of these people is, what are we going to do with this broken down financial system? That's all I want to know. Don't tell me about bailouts. I want to replace this, okay? I'm driving around in a car with square wheels. (laughs) And and my repair bill is is astronomical. I'm replacing the transmission. You know, every 500 miles it's been shaken to pieces. And you tell me, you don't identify the problem as the square wheels. And then you don't tell me, well, how am I going to solve this problem? We take the square wheels off and put a round wheel on. Right? I mean, it's at that level of simplicity. We've got to replace this system. That's the first thing. And then the second point is, well, how do we do it? And that's the incremental point. Well, we've got to come up with an alternative and let the market stabilize, and then slowly the the other one just kind of atrophies and disappears. (laughs) Now, if someone said that to me, I might say, well, okay, at least he understands the problem. Maybe he can't do it. Maybe we'll have a, a complete collapse. Maybe this is, in a sense, utopian. But at least he understands what needs to be done, and he will try to do it. 
Whether he succeeds or not is problematical. But when they don't even tell me that much, how can you be running for president and not say, well, the Federal Reserve is the problem? Very interesting. You are one of the most interesting people I've ever spoken with. Seriously. And you're hysterical on you top must, of it. And all I know, limited circle of I, and don't, you don't know. I'm not limited at all. Oh. <laughs> I know a lot of people. Okay. Um, but see that self-effacing part, you know, it must be uh, the humility. <laughs> I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. And I love your passion. And I love how you really get into the detail of everything. One of the things I love about you is you have looked at everything we're talking about on a whole systems level, and you are looking for the direction for bringing us into what's next. And I so appreciate you. You have no idea. Well, it's scientific background, you know. I used to be, many, many years ago, I used to be a chemist. And actually, I was a, a, what they call a synthesis chemist. We, we were trying to devise ways to start from something that you have on the shelf and synthesize a very complicated molecule. It was a question of really of planning, right? We want to get here, and here's where we can start. And we might have three or four different ways of starting, right? And then you work out a sequence of steps, thoroughly researched, because you don't want to come in the middle and discover that the step that you hypothesized couldn't be done, right? So you had that kind of a plan. And it was all based upon some kind of a goal and some starting state of materials that you had. And so I tend to look at these kinds of problems that way. I and mean, here we are. And here's where we want, we want to go, at least in this particular situation, we want to avoid the worst effects of an economic collapse. And we'll worry later on, perhaps, in thinking of how we you know, go from there. But we're facing a Titanic-type situation. And unlike the Titanic, we can actually build some lifeboats. I mean, that was their problem. They didn't have enough lifeboats, Right. Right. And they certainly didn't have a, a, a you know wood or something on the on the boat they could have built other lifeboats. We are in a position where we know the ship is sinking, but we have the opportunity now to build some lifeboats. And that's the transition that we're in, and that's the opportunity of yeah, our time. That's a great opportunity. Yes. And what we're standing up against primarily is uh, ignorance. That's number one. I don't call it stupidity because I don't think these people are incapable of understanding. They just don't know. They haven't been educated in this. Apathy. A- apathy. Fear. Definitely. Right? And then there's a lot in it that ties to what I would call careerism. They're where they are because of the way this system has operated. And they're really afraid, what's going to happen to me if this system changes? Am I going to have to get an honest job? I can't be a congressman anymore, right? What's going to happen to me? And that's the worst of all because... And when you're dealing with that kind of personal careerist attitude, usually no amount of facts or logic gets through. I want to thank you for being on the show and tell you how much I appreciate you. I just love you. And thank God you're alive at this time in history to assist us and really bring people into the central focus of what we need to be thinking about, what we need to be at work on, and what we need to be doing. Edwin Vera, thank you so much. And for those of you who would like to find out more about him, I think you really heard the essence of who he is and what he's about. But you can go to newswithviews.com where many of his articles are. You can buy his books. You can also buy Pieces of Eight at the Gold Money Foundation. Or Amazon. Or Amazon.com, which is supposed to be a landmark book that we should pick up. And also for those of you who are interested in gold clauses and silver clauses in financial transactions, a practical study concerning their origin and use, you may want to pick that up. 
Edwin, thank you so much. I hope that you'll come on again soon. Oh, anytime. Thank you so much. You're welcome.